So what the evidence basically shows beyond any reasonable doubt that this massacre was uh, organized and um, perpetrated, not by the Yanukovych government, not by his uh, sniper units or any kind of police units which are charged with the massacre, but um, it was organized and uh, perpetrated within the moment of elements of far-right opposition and also Maidan opposition, oligarchic parties like Fazlan Party, and this uh, massacre, this massacre was a crucial um, kind of event which led to overthrow of the Yanukovych government along with assassination attempts against him, and this uh, kind of violent overthrow of the government was uh, kind of this uh, massacre led to violent overthrow of the Ukrainian government, and this violent overthrow was supported and de facto Maidan massacre was also supported de facto, at least de facto, by the Western governments, which immediately recognized new government of Ukraine. And this is uh, uh, very crucial for understanding conflicts in Ukraine and origins of the conflicts in Ukraine, because this massacre ultimately led to conflict between Russia and Ukraine. And, and now, which Russia now escalated by uh, dramatically by invading uh, UK. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Artifact number 38. I am very excited to bring to you today the work of Professor Ivan Kachanovsky. He is a professor at the University of Ottawa. He's actually a Ukrainian-born scholar. Um, he was actually a dissident in the Soviet Union, and he remains in, in many ways a dissident today. Uh, I find that very interesting, and hopefully we'll get to talk about that a little bit. I myself actually have a little bit of a Ukrainian connection. Viewers of this channel might know that I was born in Belarus, and not too far from uh, the nuclear fallout from Chernobyl. I have uh, uh, this little nipple on my hand to prove it. Right, uh, I had mutations on both hands. I had uh, six toes, all kinds of weird health problems growing up as a child that spontaneously seemed to disappear. Um, so I have a little bit of a connection there. I, I find it interesting to uh, discuss our perspectives on the Russia-Ukraine war. Both of us are anti-Russian invasion. However, we are both uncomfortable with much of the propaganda uh, about the war about maybe the history of Ukraine and, and U.S.-Russia uh, re uh, relations in the past. Um, so we're going to pick apart uh, through some of that. And also, I, I, I saw, uh, so uh, Professor Kachanovsky is uh, most well-known for his work on the Maidan. Uh, I came across this article that he did some years ago on the Maidan massacre, actually February 20th, which is, which is when we're recording the show today. Uh, is it's the nine-year anniversary of the Maidan massacre, which set off a chain of events that ultimately led to the Russian invasion. I'd argue the chain of events started even earlier, but we could get into that later. Um, I want to talk about Maidan, uh, legality of the war, that sort of thing, but also have a discussion really on things that I don't really see talked about too much. For instance, early Ukrainian history, um, early 90s uh, history of Ukraine, uh, uh, some interesting developments historically in the Donbass, right? We don't we don't hear too much about that now. Um, some tackling maybe some elite liberal opinions 
from the 90s in America about Russia that very conveniently have come 2022 and 2023 have been swept under the rug. So uh, I, I think uh, a mix of all these would be making for a pretty interesting show, perspectives you guys don't typically hear, even if you're used to reading about Russia, Ukraine from our perspective, right? Maybe you don't know some of the details that we're going to discuss here. So um, uh, uh, I, I want to actually uh, just like s- sort of ask about your dissident history, because as I was saying before the show began, uh, uh you know, like we have this sort of like uh, history, right, in the Soviet Union, where uh, people, let's say, there were like very serious dissidents in the Soviet Union, the 80s and the 70s and the 60s. Come, I don't know, 1996, these people that used to be dissidents, suddenly they're very happy in Yeltsin's Russia, right? Or they're very happy in Ukraine and they quit being dissidents for good. And I find that very silly, right? I mean, if you're an actual dissident, you always see things wrong with the status quo right it's an enduring process it's not something that ever ceases so i was happy to find that you were a dissident in 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 both situations then and now so maybe we could start start with that your upbringing in ukraine uh the nature of your dissident work in the 80s um and uh, perhaps how you came to some of your perspectives today uh, thank you for the invitation uh, uh this is, i think very important topics and very important issues and also um, which involve not only Ukraine and Russia, but also many other countries, including the United States. And in addition to this, we have also anniversary of um, Maidan Massacre, which is another issue which I research and which had very significant consequences for Ukraine and, and the world. So, and I would be happy to discuss these issues, uh, which I research for a long time, but also my own personal perspective as a scholar and also as a Ukrainian who kind of has uh, kind of knowledge of Ukraine, which is also often is not um, kind of, uh, presented by the media and uh, people who discuss Ukraine, and they are not able even to speak Ukrainian. They've never been to Ukraine, but now we have a lot of experts uh, suddenly who now kind of dominate the media coverage and uh, discussions about Ukraine, even so on the same applies to social media. But uh, actually, uh, this is uh, not based on any reality or any actual understanding on, uh, of Ukraine and conflict in Ukraine. So uh, getting into uh, your your uh, dissidents um, in the 80s and beyond, uh, what did that look like exactly? What did Soviet censorship of your work look like? Uh, what are the commonalities between that versus what you see today? So I was always interested in politics. When I was a child, I wanted to be a professor and studying politics or international relations since I was about 10 years old. So I had to choose. I was interested in also Kind of in study of politics of foreign countries because at this time it was not possible to study Soviet politics because of censorship. So, so this is kind of an ideology. You cannot have even a discipline of political science or international relations. And it was not possible uh, to even to get um, into um, kind of university like uh, to study international relations. When I wanted to transfer to university, um, from Kiev uh, in my economics university to university um, to study international relations in Kiev University in their department in 1988, I was immediately um, kind of uh, escorted to head of local party committee, not the head of the, the department, but head of a local communist <coughs> party committee who said 
to me, who told me, do not even try to do this because <laughs> this was basically a kind of a situation because I was not, because this admission required recommendation from a regional party committee and I was not involved in any kind of political activity. I was not a member of Communist Party. I, I kind of, I was, um, again, interested in this as academic and very interesting that at the same time then uh, two students of this university of faculty of international relations at Kiev University included Petro uh, 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 Poroshenko who became president of Ukraine and uh, Mikhail Sekashvili who became a president of Georgia. So they were then obviously they were able to get accommodation from the regional communist party Kind of committees because they are kind of families where uh, members of the Soviet nomenclature, basically a Soviet elite. My family, they were ordinary Ukrainians, so they kind of they were not involved in any politics. I grew up in Western Ukraine, which is my native region of Ukraine. But my family, they were kind of expelled from Poland. Uh, during ethnic cleansing uh, after the end of World War II in 1945 as Ukrainians, along with uh, several hundred of other Ukrainians, several hundred thousands of other Ukrainians, they, they were expelled to, from uh, Poland uh, to uh, Soviet Ukraine as a part of this um, kind of forced exchange of the population. And um, so I grew up basically with my family telling me histories of their own kind of experience, their own kind of perspective. My mother, uh, <coughs> she lived in four countries without moving to, from any, uh, on her own, from any country, just because of politics. My grandmother, again, was telling me again about her own experience during World War One, like Poland, uh, and also they became refugees during World War One, kind of, and then uh, living in Poland, World War Two, and uh, being expelled after World War Two. So this is just also, she lived in five countries without any uh, any movement on her own. So I was interested in politics and uh, kind of I wanted to study politics, but it was not possible at the time of the Soviet Union. So I went to study at the National Economic University in Kiev, which did not require any kind of uh, regional party kind of recommendation. And I was accepted and um, I studied there and um, I also but kind of became interested in political, first political demonstrations which took place then in Kiev. So I attended, I think, the first uh, political demonstration, anti-Soviet demonstration, which was held in uh, in the fall of 1988 uh, in Kiev. Uh, this was um, or like late summer or fall of 1988. In Kiev, I still remember this, um, this uh, de small demonstration, which was attended just by a few dozen people. So this is just first demonstration, which was attended by a few dozen people. I was there because I, kind of, kind of, I was interested uh, in uh, in politics and also kind of I did not support any Soviet Union kind of um, system. So I wanted to see kind of an experience this myself. And and at the same time, um, uh, it was very interesting because uh, when I saw this demonstration, during this demonstration, uh, there were uh, one there were kind of few cases. Of uh, when uh, people who uh, raised uh, Ukrainian flag, they were arrested. One woman who raised Ukrainian flag, she was arrested by undercover agents, like like KGB agents and so on, just uh, for raising her flag, blue and yellow flag, which was again banned in the Soviet Union. And other people were also you know, 
kind of uh, persecuted, but uh, when they tried to defend her, but and arrested when they tried to defend her, but this was actually the first legal demonstration, not illegal, but how to say, it was not authorized, but it was kind of permitted for, in the first place. So this was a very big change to have uh, basically alternative given uh, kind of form, you know, a political alternative, because before this, when I was um, studying in university, my um, kind of head of a local party committee, kind of in my um, department, she asked me if, I, uh, since I am interested in politics, why I'm not joining a communist political party? Because this is obvious, kind of I'm interested in politics as a student, and she said, uh, why uh, you not joining communist party? And I said, I did not yet decide which political party to join. And she would tell me like just how it's possible we have just one political party. So this no kind of, uh, so, so this was kind of considered to be kind of, so I consider this to be normal, but this was totally outside of normality. So this is just give you examples. Such views were considered to be totally kind of outside. Um, this was considered to be marginal views, kind of totally unacceptable. Kind of, and, uh, but now this is taken for granted by many people, but this is not the case. And this is why kind of being just one of a few dozen people who kind of attended such demonstration, first demonstration kind of gives you kind of perspective because this was uh, not easy also. And afterwards, uh, kind of in terms of uh, getting any kind of uh, uh, future kind of um, kind of uh, prospects in terms of jobs and any kind of uh, future developments. And also I attended all other major demonstrations in the UK uh, since, um, kind of, uh, since 1988 until 1990 when I was student at Kyiv University because I was interested in these demonstrations and including this first demonstration, they were organized by Ruch, kind of nationalist, nationalist organization, which was, uh, and also they were anti-Chernobyl kind of demonstrations, also ecological ones. But they attracted a lot of participants from different regions of Ukraine, and many of them came from Western Ukraine, including very rad radical, um, kind of uh, ultra-nationalist and far-right politicians. And uh, because uh, in Western Ukraine, specifically in Galicia, there was very strong anti-Soviet sentiment, and they uh, kind of uh, came to UK uh, to Kiev and participated in such demonstrations, which were still relatively small. This was nothing comparable, kind of, to mass movement. But um, kind of, I was interested in politics. That's why, and I also kind of supported democracy at the time and um, kind of multi-party system and post-Soviet system. And um, kind of, uh, this is why I was attending such demonstrations. And when I submitted my proposal in my university in 1990, so I submitted my uh, final thesis um, to my university department, to kind of my advisor. And he told me that he could not be my advisor anymore because um, he said that my proposal is not acceptable. So he um, uh, escorted me to head of my department in the university. And the head of my department told me that they're going to expel me from the university if I would write my thesis, final thesis. So this is obviously kind of uh, was very interesting development to say it mildly because I had all excellent marks, uh, grades. And uh, there was only final thesis left, and um, and you basically would be told that uh, you hear that you're going to be expelled from university because and the reason for this was because I proposed to write my this uh, the final thesis based on a series of Western economists and um, and uh, like famous sociologist Max Weber, uh, classical sociologist, and not based on Marxist Leninist ideology. So this was considered to be unacceptable. So they said for this reason you're going to be kind of expelled if you would write this. 
I also proposed that I'm gonna write my final thesis in Ukrainian, because language of education in university was kind of Russian, um, and I am native Ukrainian speaker. I, my uh, language, uh, my native language is Ukrainian, and uh, I was educated in Ukrainian in high school and uh, in school basically. But university have Russian as language of education, but uh, it was possible kind of to write in Ukrainian, so I submitted uh, kind of uh, kind of. Uh, this was not actually possible because all the people basically wrote in Russian. So it, uh, but I submitted my proposal saying that I'm going to write in Ukrainian, and uh, the uh, one of uh, heads of, of university told me that this is fine. You can write in Chinese. So this was not a problem that I wrote in Ukrainian. So this is not a reason for expulsion. But the problem was that uh, you cannot write anything that uh, goes against ideology. So this is kind of example, and I wrote this anyway. And uh, this uh, kind of, when I wrote this, submitted my proposal, so uh, when I submitted my um, final thesis, so they uh, said, uh, kind of, they look into my thesis, and uh, at this at that time there was um, uh, political changes taking place, uh, political change 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 uh, taking place in Ukraine, and also because of perestroika and glasnost, so politics changed, uh, I, and I was lucky that uh, by the time when I submitted my thesis, it was no longer kind of, uh, kind of. Uh, kind of such um, how to say extreme uh, kind of censorship and extreme uh, ideology domination. It was possible kind of uh, to avoid the most extreme expulsion, uh, extreme punishment of expulsion from university. But instead of expulsion, I was uh, given C basically kind of C equivalent, which meant that uh, I could not go to any graduate school, any graduate program, because uh, such um, admission to graduate program in the Soviet Union also required accommodation from my. Uh, university. So I cannot get such accommodation after basically being told that I would be expelled. This is unacceptable. And I was given C. So this is kind of means, uh, this meant that I could not continue my education, um, graduate education in the Soviet Union. So I was um, then found a job in, uh, in Western, in my native city of Lutsk in Western Ukraine. And I was working on a rehabilitation of uh, people who were members and, uh, and uh, uh, relatives of uh, and other people who were accused for uh, basically kind of being political prisoners under Stalin. So they were expelled to Siberia uh, in the uh, 1930s and of 1930s when the, this region was uh, kind of incorporated into Soviet Union. And then uh, also after World War II, they were expelled into, uh, kind of into basically Russia, Siberia, Kazakhstan, and these areas um, because of uh, they were either members of organization of Ukrainian nationalists and Ukrainian insurgent army, or they were kind of um, their relatives or helping in any way, uh, kind of, or they were just very rich uh, peasants, which was another crime. So this was kind of my job for two years, but then Soviet Union collapsed and I was able to get, uh, to go to graduate school, uh, first in um, Central European University in Prague, and then um, moved to the United States and got my PhD in the United States under the direction of uh, Simon Martin Lipset, who is one of the top scholars, who is actually one of the most highly cited scholars in the world uh, of all times in terms of in political science and sociology. So this is just uh, kind of my background and um, my experience, but I think uh, when uh, I remember all these demonstrations and situation, which was kind of at the time, and you just feel uh, kind of basically this is you go against one, just few people. Basically, you go against uh, dominant view, so against millions of other people. So basically, this was kind of experience 
which is even much worse than anything which can happen today. But there are, I see a lot of parallels to situation when there is now attempt to suppress any kind of um, anything which goes against narrative about war in Ukraine or anything which goes against uh, this dominant uh, kind of propaganda about uh, kind of conflict and origins and Ukrainian politics. So for me, this is nothing new and uh, kind of, and I'm not uh, kind of in any way deterred by such consequences because I always know that this is actually what's going on is actually is uh, is uh, nothing compared to what I uh, kind of experienced and what kind of punishment could have been in the Soviet Union. And I also studied the Soviet uh, 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 great terror under Stalin. And actually what is very interesting that um, Again, when I look into kind of denunciations, mass denunciations of people like as foreign spies, basically because they have uh, any uh, relationship with foreign countries, they had relatives in foreign countries or just visited foreign country because they were scholars and they were accused of being spies for such a reason, which is now kind of the same kind of similar situation which you have a lot. As people, if you have say something, they would kind of make all these claims uh, about uh, kind of this is like a kind of now discourse a lot of similar kind of discourse obviously without similar uh, consequences and one of actually scholars who was accused of uh, of being a kind of spy for Germany for Poland and, um, and other countries and being terrorist and so on he was a kind of a famous Ukrainian mathematician you know kind of named Mikhailo Kravchuk and uh, I learned uh, in the 1990s beginning of 1990s that he was my distant relative so I was starting to do research about him and his persecution. So he was arrested in 1938 and, uh, and sent to Gulag, and uh, he perished in Gulag. So I uh, was doing this research about him and kind of uh, found accidentally on uh, using a um, uh, search engine, just at the end of 1990s, I found that there are documents um, containing his book, translation of his book and letters to him uh, from a, a mathematician called uh, John Vincent Tatanasov, who was professor of mathematics and statistics at uh, Iowa State University. And this is, so I did research about this issue. And what I found, this was kind of quite amazing uh, in terms of what I found, that this uh, mathematician, John Vincent Tatanasov, actually um, invented electronic digital computer at, this, at the time at the end of 1930s, specifically to speed up solution of mathematical equations using methods specific methods which were invented by this Ukrainian mathematician, Mikhail Kavchuk, and he wrote letters to this to Kavchuk, which I found copies of these letters, saying that, uh, that his work was very useful in his own work, which at the time meant inventing electronic digital computer. I also found the translation of, of into, from Ukrainian into English, uh, his um, two volumes of uh, a book by uh, this Ukrainian mathematician published, um, so, which was not published, but um, was done by Atanasov and, and Liberian. And Atanasov was of Bulgarian origin, so he did not speak any kind of Ukrainian, but this Liberian helped him to translate this uh, kind of book into English. And so this is just an example. So now basically kind of computer, um, kind of invention of computer has a direct connection to kind of uh, to this Ukrainian mathematician and persecution of this mathematician. This is just one example when um, when uh, kind of being just mathematician totally kind of distanced from any politics can be, be still considered to be crime in the Soviet Union because you you had the connection. He had connection. Uh, he had exchange with foreign countries. He had uh, like family uh, relatives in in the kind of part of Poland. So this is just one example of which kind of um, now. 
uh, as a consequence of this, uh, his persecution and his work being used for invention of electronic digital computer, this now had the effect on computer revolution because in the 1970s, Atanasov was recognized as the inventor of electronic digital computer and patent on a computer which was um, uh, before held by inventors of ENIAC and was bought by IBM, was canceled by US federal court. And this led basically to kind of, um, this was one of the major factors for um, computer revolution in the 1970s. Afterwards, you have uh, kind of Microsoft and Apple, uh, all the companies basically started to develop before, because before this, it was not possible to do this because it was necessary to pay very large royalties to kind of for, for right to build computers and so on to IBM, which had patent on computers. So this is just kind of just one kind of background and one interesting connection in this regard. Yeah, the the entire um, you know Soviet uh, versus uh, America censorship connection uh, is interesting because I mean, like first of all, uh, you came um, to prominence recently, at least like in the media in the past ten years or so. Uh, I assume you already had, for instance, tenure right at a university. Um, by comparison, I, I interviewed uh, Norman Finkelstein, right, who is a Jewish scholar of the Holocaust in Israel Palestine. Uh, probably the best scholar on Israel-Palestinian relations uh, that I, I've come across. And he, because he didn't have tenure, uh, he was not given tenure due to the nature of his work. Um, in America, we don't have, uh, or you know, Europe for that matter, we don't have the typical sort of government censorship that would be found in the Soviet Union that America would sort of like virtue signal about, like at least we don't have that kind of repression, but we do have a very robust system of control, right? Uh, if government uh, due to laws or, or other factors is not going to engage in outright censorship of voices, what happens instead is they essentially outsource censorship to liberal organizations, right? It could be something like Twitter, right? Uh, uh, very interestingly, right? There, there's not that many laws in the United States about what Twitter should or should not do with the exception of like obvious extreme cases. Um, but, you know, we have technologists that will uh, make that decision. Uh, we don't have laws about, uh, you know, you can't uh, say X, Y, and Z about uh, Israel-Palestine in America. Uh, well, with the exception of we do have sort of uh, some some federal statutes, for example, like in Texas, you can't be a federal worker or a contractor if you, you know, I, I think support the BDS movement or something like that. So there's there there is actual like, government censorship, but for the most part, uh, uh, the government says we're going to allow the organizations themselves to to take care of this, and this would obviously intensify in times of war. This would intensify during times whenever a nation state, even if it's a very liberal nation state, once they start considering that whatever's going on is just too important to leave up to sort of, you know, a liberal principles, we're going to engage in some level of censorship, either directly through government or through indirect means. Um, I, I wanted to ask something that you said about uh, uh, basically like in 80s Ukraine, uh, uh, 80s Soviet Union. When there were these student demonstrators, what exactly, because we've had like so many permutations of the left-right divide, 
um, especially more recently where, you know, terms like conservative don't mean anything at all, right? We have, for instance, like a finite planet with finite resources and conservatives today don't accept climate change. You know, it's totally insane. As conservative psychology would suggest, finite resources need to be treated with respect. But so we've had all these permutations, but what did like leftist progressive politics look like in the 1980s? Was it like specifically you guys were agitating for democracy? Was it like uh, for a market economy? What exactly was you know, the sort of like window of discussion? What did that look like? Well, this is again a kind of a very interesting question. I was not involved in any organization, like any kind of ideology. So I was uh, just supporting democracy, like human rights, um, basically freedom of the media, just all the principles of um, kind of liberal democracy, not on the left, on the right. And I was uh, not affiliated with any movement. And actually, because all the demonstrations from all major opposition then and the, in Ukraine was from nationalist organizations and uh, kind of I supported the like anti-Soviet kind of what this um, kind of um, ideology and movement against the uh, Soviet system, but I did not support all the kind of um, nationalist ideology, which was kind of uh, just uh, making basically Ukrainian kind of what, what we see a lot of manifestation in Ukraine, what happened after kind of independence and specifically after Maidan, all this kind of focus on language and kind of as primary issue like ethnic nationalism and uh, kind of creation of, of political myths and so on. This is like a kind of ideology which is um, kind of not supported and there was no any kind of left uh, opposition, uh, almost nothing left. Kind of, there was a communist party which was um, dominant party and uh, kind of at the time and uh, and um, opposition was relatively small and even uh, kind of during the coup which place um, in August of 1991 when I was uh, kind of working in Lutsk kind of in um, western Ukraine there was no demonstration no opposition no no viable opposition no kind of any action of protest after coup attempt in, in august of 1991 which took place uh, in uh, moscow and in other places in, in and Gorbachev was arrested and so on by hard alliances. There was no kind of opposition, nothing basically, even in uh, in Lutsk, which is Western Ukraine, and uh, the same applies to other cities in Ukraine, in Kiev, and and um, and uh, also in uh, in uh, even in Lviv, because and I, when I saw parliament session at the time, all many members of the parliament, including then uh, kind of head of the parliament, um, Leonid Kavchuk, they were basically kind of very shifting their position. They uh, first, after the coup, they uh, became very kind of cautious and did not oppose this coup and uh, kind of and, um, basically is, is tacitly accepted a new kind of um, government which was attempting to seize power in Ukraine or just um, kind of or kind of refusing to hold any kind of resistance to this new government uh, kind of um, uh, and afterwards when the coup failed they immediately started to support independence of Ukraine so this is like communist party officials and leaders led by former head of um, um, kind of uh, uh, kind of uh, ideology of in the communist party Leonid Kavchuk who became uh, kind of head of Ukrainian parliament they actually started to support independence and they voted for independence this was done overnight so they overnight basically changed their policy and political orientation twice kind of first after the coup and then after the failure of the coup they they kind of um, changed their kind of uh, position again and this is was the, just demonstration basically that people 
have a very little ideological motivation that they are motivated by kind of by uh, their self-interest and uh, they were kind of even so they were formerly like communist kind of party members they they changed their entire political orientation very fast after it became politically kind of damaging for them and they started to support nationalist kind of position nationalist party i always remain kind of a supporter of democracy and kind of uh, and uh, human rights. So for, for me, this was the most important uh, principles, and this is why I support the same principles. Uh, and this is not uh, easy to do this because, again, uh, all the focus is uh, kind of on uh, this ideology and narratives, and uh, the issues of democracy, human rights, and freedoms are just often spoken about, but uh, they do not, they are not respected. So this is kind of this is, I think, this is very important to accept, uh, kind of, not only uh, freedom of uh, freedom of speech and kind of and human rights issues and other principles, not just uh, accept this for kind of for your own political group, but also to, uh, to accept this for other people with different views, because this is like feature of democracy. This is like essential element of democracy, and if we have. Uh, such kind of uh, diversity and such priority of views and perspectives and opportunity to express such views uh, kind of uh, as a, kind of limited by by the government or by other venues this becomes very dangerous and because this limits democracy and, and uh, would have kind of uh, can lead to can lead to kind of very significant consequences in terms of kind of um, uh, policies which are adopted and a negative kind of impact on people who suffer such persecution. And this is just from also from my own personal experience. So this is why I kind of regard this such attempts now kind of as an attempt basically, which I think they would be bound to failure because even in the Soviet Union they failed to kind of sustain Soviet system. And in my uh, final thesis, which I wrote actually. Which I mentioned uh, in 1990, I uh, argued in my, my final thesis that the Soviet system is kind of is inefficient, and for this reason, it's it's bound to collapse. So this is again, which view was which was totally kind of um, outside of of uh, considered to be acceptable. This was considered to be kind of how to say even uh, kind of was uh, special from university, which I mentioned already. But um, uh, what happened? Very interesting uh, development happened that a few years after kind of. Uh, uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, the same head of the department who told me that I would be expelled for just uh, for using Western economic theories, uh, kind of, and, and for, for what I wrote in my thesis, the Soviet system is inefficient and was bound to collapse. He he became a chair of a dissertation of a graduate dissertation or PhD dissertation for Yulia Tymoshenko, who became a first oligarch of Ukraine. And this dissertation was about uh, something transition towards market economy. So this is just the same person who before kind of uh, was telling me that kind of uh, that this is not acceptable to write uh, even an undergraduate thesis. Kind of um, <laughs> now uh, kind of would, uh, was uh, was kind of was uh, uh, becoming head of kind of uh, or chair of a uh, kind of dissertation committee, uh, basically of this oligarch of, and saying this is like a transition towards market economy. So this is just one illustration, kind of how people can change. And I think the same situation. I see a lot of kind of continuation of this. I see um, how people in Ukraine, in terms of politics, they change depending on uh, who, which government is in power. 
because uh, power in Ukraine gives a lot of money, a lot of access, and, and so on. And it's very beneficial to be in power, and it's very difficult to be in opposition to government or criticize government. And I think the same issue now is often uh, repeating in the West, which is kind of, for me, it often looks like a repetition of, of Ukrainian politics and even Soviet politics to a certain extent. So this is, I think, a very kind of, very worrying development in this regard. Yeah, and I wonder to what extent, I mean, for instance, you say, you know, this uh, guy changes from being a party ideologue to a sort of, you know, uh, rich uh, oligarch who doesn't care about that anymore. I mean, is that really a change or is that simply uh, kind of like speaking to the fact that when it comes to most people, it really does seem as if they have a total void within themselves when it comes to purpose when it comes to principles um i mean you see this over and over again I, I do find you know some of those changes uh from you know like if you have like a transitional reg regime one ideology to the next like if you could change so easily you probably had no no core to begin with in america more recently for instance uh, i recall how during 2020 the democratic party was virtue signaling all the time about how badly Donald Trump was mishandling coronavirus, which is true. Of course, he was mishandling coronavirus. If we had, you know, a just world, Donald Trump would be serving multiple uh, consecutive life sentences for mass murder, right? The mass murder of 400,000 Americans. Um, but when Biden came into office, right, uh, uh, very quickly that we had the vaccine rollout and Biden is up there, you know, declaring a mission accomplished, right? Uh, uh, declaring Independence Day from coronavirus just three months into the vaccine and from the time when he makes that declaration uh to uh maybe like a year later the body count from that point literally doubles right when we hit the one million milestone of deaths in the united states of america there was barely any coverage at all i remember waiting like patiently okay i know that in the next couple of weeks the next few days we're going to hit that one million uh, uh corpse mark what's going to happen and when we finally did and i gave it a couple of days virtually no major uh, news outlet had any real stories about that right um so uh, that sort of thing happens all the time um and you know speaking to these sor sorts of kind of like uh, you know internal changes or or uh, uh, the lack thereof um you know I, I i do like we we could get into uh, some of these oligarchs uh but uh, i i want to i want to talk about first like to set the stage for like early 90s ukraine um just just like this notion of like what what does an independent ukraine mean right there's a lot of like for instance historical uh commentary today about like oh what can we compare the russian invasion to right and of course our, the knee-jerk reaction is oh of course it looks like the you know uh, uh, uh nazism right it looks like hitler invading poland um but when i look at this i think uh, the much more kind of relevant distinction is uh if you look at maybe the, the 1853 to 1856 Crimean War, that is probably a much closer analog, right, to Putin's invasion of Ukraine um, in the sense that, first of all, we have uh, we have like that great game, right, in the 1800s that, that refers to the fact how all the great powers, they were trying to contain Russia because Russia was in uh, a, a kind of like expansionist mindset you know i think all states are more or less like that if a state feels they could get away with some level of expansionism they're going to do it america is constrained by the fact that it says you know we're 
we're the democracy. We have a lot of soft power. We can't just whittle it uh, away through, you know, arbitrary actions. Of course, they, they do some arbitrary actions like the invasion of, of Iraq and whatnot. But it, it's a bit harder to do that compared to 200 years ago. So during this great game, right, uh, uh, all these great powers are trying to control Russia. And uh, at the time, I remember there was this there was this like Russian uh, uh, there was this Russian historian. And this is what he said about um, how Russia was being treated on the international stage. He said, Russia occupies Moldova, albeit only temporarily. That disturbs the balance of power. France occupies Rome and stays there several years during peacetime. That is nothing. But Russia only thinks of occupying Constantinople and the peace of Europe is threatened. The English declare war on the Chinese who have it, it seems, offended them. No one has the right to intervene. But Russia is obliged to ask Europe for permission if it quarrels with its neighbor. England threatens Greece. Um, and uh, burns its fleet. That is a lawful action, but Russia demands a treaty to protect millions of Christians, and that is deemed to strengthen its position in the East at the expense of the balance of power. And what he's referring to is Russia at the time, just like Putin, you know, more recently, he's saying stuff like, I need to protect the Russians in the Donbass. I need to protect uh, against genocide. More recently, with some of the anti Orthodox Christianity measures that uh, uh, Zelensky took, um, he's saying, now I have to protect, right? Uh, this Orthodox Christian population. But at the same time, in all these kinds of questions, uh, it really does seem to me like when people discuss things like uh, Ukrainian independence, it almost seems like a dog whistle, right? When the West says Ukrainian independence, what they really mean is uh, a Ukraine that is a kind of client state of the West, Right. And we see this as early as uh, maybe like World War One, right, where um, uh, during uh, the allied powers ultimately support a, a, a Polish state that has like all these claims on Ukrainian territory. Right. Um, by the time they would get to the 1990s. Uh, uh, the United States is making all these like contradictory promises to these like post-Soviet states and nobody's actually treating like nobody actually seems to truly want an independent ukraine russia wants to ultimately have a ukraine that it could control the west wants to have a ukraine that it could ultimately control i wonder if you agree with me that um many of the problems that we could trace going on right now in that region has to do with the fact that absolutely there was a failure in the 90s to establish a credible and truly independent Ukraine. Because if Ukraine is asked to give up nuclear weapons on the one hand, gets these security guarantees, but without NATO, and in the 90s and also even under Obama, right? Obama said, I'm not gonna go to war with Russia over Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine is much more valuable to Russia than it is to us. Let's just leave this alone. But if we had an actually strong Ukraine that was truly independent and truly neutral, credibly neutral, that is probably more valuable to Russia than it was to the West, right? The West could have an independent Ukraine that serves as a bulwark against Russia, but Russia as a weaker state needs that bulwark even more. So, I mean, I mean do you agree with that, that like, first of all, there, there's been this kind of like dog whistle uh, related to an independent Ukraine that is actually not really independent? And second, that, that, that lack of true credible independence is what led to a lot of these problems in the first place? I think this is more complex issue. And after you can... <clears throat> Declared its independence from uh, from the Soviet Union. This was, uh, I think, a very important development because this was a peaceful you know, breakup of the Soviet Union. This was 
not uh, kind of uh, something which could have a turning to war like it. what happened in Yugoslavia. So Yugoslavia is an example of what could have happened to Ukraine and other post-Soviet states if um, if uh, Gorbachev or Yeltsin decided to use military force and to not allow backup of the Soviet Union or independence of Ukraine. So this was a real possibility and a lot of people took this for granted that this, this was peaceful uh, backup of the Soviet Union and this was kind of accepted as um, as a normal, and this would continue for a very long time. But this is something which was, I think, in this regard, Ukraine was lucky that the war did not take place in, in kind of in around 1991 because there was already there were already conflicts like Crimea. There was support of separatism wanted wanted to join join Russia in Crimea in the end of 1980s, beginning of 1990s. When uh, there was a, a pro-Russian separatist government in Crimea, and uh, also in Donbass, there was support for separatists in Donbass, according to public opinion polls. Uh, there was um, a strong support for joining Russia uh, around 1991 during the backup of the Soviet Union. Even so, both these regions voted for independence of Ukraine. But the vote for independence again very, was very kind of important because a lot of people this took this vote as you know, as a manifestation of our actually views of Ukrainians on this issue. But what happened was very interesting because uh, the referendum which was, took place in 1991 in March, just several months before in March of 1991, on preservation of the Soviet Union, so gave totally different result. In all regions of Ukraine, with the exception of Western Ukraine, there was support for uh, preservation of the Soviet Union. And very strong support for preservation of the Soviet Union was in um, Crimea and in uh, and in Donbass. And after the failed fail coup in August of 1991, uh, kind of uh, uh, basically a communist uh, leadership under uh, head of this uh, uh, Biskavchuk, former Communist Party leader of Ukraine, came to power in Ukraine and they actually promised Ukrainians basically kind of, kind of uh, friendly relations with Russia uh, using uh, Russian language, basically protection of Russian language, but also they were regarded as basically kind of successors to Communist Party. At the time when uh, in Russia there was Yeltsin in power who was basically prohibited Communist Party and this kind of the same happened in Ukraine, but uh, kind of a lot of people actually voted, and there was there was also very kind of strong uh, kind of um, perception that Ukraine was a country which would benefit compared to Russia because it was a major agricultural country with uh, production of wheat and grain and uh, milk and, um, and uh, meat, which were became uh, short shortage items. And a lot of people believe that they would support independence of Ukraine, not because they were supporting these ideas, but they believe that they, they would support kind of independence of Ukraine because former communists were in power, they promised, promised Russian language protection, uh, official status of Russian language, they promised also economic kind of prosperity, because of Ukraine, kind of without Russia, they believe that would uh, again be much in much better position because this was agricultural land and so on, which was uh, considered to be advantage. Even so, according to my research, this was again even then obvious that this would be not the case in terms of uh, development, economic development of Ukraine and other kind of uh, promises. But a lot of people just wanted because of this uh, kind of uh, kind of such um, political considerations and uh, this. Uh, uh, this meant that at the beginning of 1990s, there were already signs that uh, Ukraine could be a potential uh, area of conflict, similar to what happened in other Soviet republics, like in Moldova, there was a session of um, the Russian region, which was pro-Russian region, but also included a lot of ethnic Ukrainians. Uh, 
and Moldovans, and they seceded from Moldova. De facto, in there was a war taking place in Moldova. So, and a similar situations took place in um, Albania, kind of Azerbaijan, Nagorno-Karabakh, also um, area, and also in uh, Georgia, South Ossetia, and Abkhazia. So, this was kind of very important development, and and kind of and a lot of people also took this for granted that in, in Ukraine there was no such violent conflict. And this was, I think, also kind of mistaken view because uh, according to, uh, kind of to research, and obviously if you look comparatively into neighboring uh, kind of countries like Moldova, very similar country to Ukraine, but there was a war and uh, basically breakup of country um, into pro-Russian and pro-Western regions and, uh, and pro-Romanian region and pro-Russian uh, region. And this is kind of Similar could have happened in Ukraine, and this is why I became interested in these topics and these issues. And I think one of the reasons, and I wrote dissertation based on this uh, topic, uh, looking into kind of uh, regional divisions, political divisions, and uh, conflicts in Ukraine, including separatists, and uh, looking into what explains this, uh, such divisions and what also explains uh, the lack of any violent um, uh, conflict in Ukraine contrast, in contrast to other post-Soviet countries or countries of the former Yugoslavia. And what my what I found actually is that um, the uh, the main factor which explains uh, why you can remain peaceful in 1990, contrast to many other post-Soviet states and uh, countries of former Yugoslavia, was uh, le political leadership. That uh, leaders of Ukraine like Kavchuk and then Kuchma basically. Kind of and, uh, and Russian leaders like um, kind of, yeah, Gorbachev and then uh, Yeltsin basically and, uh, at the time they were kind of uh, kind of promoting a peaceful resolution of uh, conflicts. They did not support, for instance, Russia did not support separatists in Crimea at uh, at the government level in contrast to supporting uh, kind of basically Transnistrian Republic and uh, supporting also. Uh, separatism in Abkhazia and South Ossetia. So this was a very different policy because Ukraine was regarded, how to say, uh, by Russia as its uh, kind of historical area and uh, Russians perceive Ukraine as very, as being very close, basically, kind of um, culturally and, and politically. And uh, they, uh, and uh, they regarded basically Ukraine as not a fully independent country, but as so-called near abroad. So, and they believe that they basically Ukraine would uh, be kind of under Russian sphere of influence. And this is why kind of um, they did not want to have any conflict at the time. And the same applies to Western politicians like uh, George Bush, who was president when he visited Ukraine. Kind of also gave signals that U.S. policy would not support violent breakup of the Soviet Union or even breakup of the Soviet Union. And also here, kind of after the Soviet Union collapse, there was no kind of uh, any policy by the West to deliberately stop kind of conflict in in uh, in Ukraine. And basically, by supporting overthrow of the government or doing anything which could lead to such conflict and violence, and this was, I think, very important. And, and uh, because uh, leadership in Ukraine, in Russia, and the West did not support uh, basically violent uh, conflict, violent uh, use of violence, uh, or kind of or policies which would lead to such violence, like uh, separatism in Crimea, or kind of. Uh, other policies, uh, for instance, or installation of anti-Russian government in, in Ukraine. And this is, I think, uh, explanation why Ukraine was lucky in this regard. And this changed um, uh, in 2014 after um, Maidan massacre and after violent overthrow of, of the Ukrainian government. So I think in this case, uh, kind of 1990s were kind of quite unique and quite 
kind of important for future of Ukraine because a lot of people took this for granted. They believe this is like normal situation, but for me this was very dangerous development, kind of, and this is why I wrote my dissertation because on this topic because uh, I compared Ukraine to Moldova and uh, and uh, regional divisions in Ukraine and Moldova and uh, kind of, I'm trying to explain this why. You can avoid such violent conflict in contrast to Moldova, and also to contrast um, like Georgia or to, in contrast to kind of former Yugoslavia, which was I think kind of in this case very lucky for Ukraine. But this changed, and this could have changed, and this is why I predicted that there was real possibility of Ukraine having the same fate as would be the fate of, of former Yugoslavia or former kind of um, or, uh, Moldova. And, uh, or Georgia and so on, if a similar situation would, help, uh, would happen and if uh, there would be a change in political leadership uh, policies in this regard. And this is what happened with Maidan, which uh, actually led to this conflict and basically de facto backup of Ukraine and now kind of escalated into war after illegal Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, last year. Yeah, so um, I, I I mentioned uh, to you, and I sent you the link of this uh, one uh, Russian intellectual writer uh, named Edward uh, Limanov, who, uh, so there's a clip of him going around 1992, depending on which clip you look at, uh, sometimes people just give you like maybe the first minute, uh, and maybe they don't, they, they try not to give the full three minutes. Uh, I'm actually going to, as I'm putting this video together, I'm going to play it for the viewers, and I'm going to have it translated with subtitles, so that they could see uh, what we're referencing, and I'm going to just play it right now. Политику в любой стране, самой латиноамериканской стране, давно бы растерзали руководство. В нормальной стране посадили в тюрьму и судили бы всемородно. Первое дело это не построение рынка, а первая забота президента и правительства это благосостояние своего народа, немедленное. Ну если нищий президент. Президент и правительство нищие. Как они могут накормить? Слушайте, зачем, зачем тогда берут власть? Зачем? Власть это умение наладить страну. Нет, уйди, не можешь ее наладить, уйди. Кровь уже есть. Вы задумались над тем, что уже погибло людей во всех, в общем, суммах. Куда больше, чем во время афганской войны за время перестройки. Десятки тысяч людей погибли. Если говорить, то в ряду преступлений после сталинизма, если считать его преступлением, если считать застой преступлением, то перестройка тоже преступление. И какое? И какое преступление? Вы даете себе отчет, что будет завтра на Украине, например? Это все, сейчас можно сказать, отношения между украинцами и русскими более или менее дружественные. Но это все изменяется ежедневно. Вот сейчас была история с Черноморским флотом. Завтра будет из-за Крыма. Каждый раз это эскалация эмоций. Потому что национализм это эмоции. Непрерывная эскалация эмоций. Одна сторона начинает, другая ей отвечает. Потом никто не помнит, кто начал. Я вот был где в декабре прошлого года в Югославии был в Кратии, в этой самой области Словении, которая защищает сербы. Вот там это началось точно так же. До этого я был там в 89 году. Там было абсолютно тихо и ходили приличные нормальные люди. А сейчас я посетил там центр опознания трупов. Там дети с перерезанными горлами, с выколотыми глазами. Вот то же самое будет и на Украине. Будет, я вам говорю. Я не... Кто хочет этого? Никто не хочет. Надо было защитить сразу же право 12 миллионов русских на Украине, а говорить их права. По какому 
подпирать праву. Они заявляют свое. Почему им должен принадлежать Крым? Почему им должна принадлежать Харьковская область? Почему им должен принадлежать Донбасс? Безусловно, сейчас настолько далеко зашло все это, что невозможно ничего другого уже сделать. Безусловно, нужно сильное правительство, потому что слабое правительство можно было где-нибудь в 85 году выдержать. Теперь уже оно никого не сдержит. Ну вот я и говорю, что сейчас... Да, конечно, нужно мускулистое правительство, которое, принимая какие-то указы, будет способно их осуществить. Хорошо, Которое, если скажет, там, здесь наша граница, и не шагу вперед. Okay, so what Edward Limanov uh, is saying there uh, essentially is uh, in 1992, right, there's this major demonstration, Boris Yeltsin is out there. And so there's a couple of things that are interesting, uh, I think, uh, in hindsight. First of all, uh, he says that, okay, look what's going on around us, right? Boris Yeltsin is in power, right? Uh, he, he sees Boris Yeltsin as a very kind of weak figure. And he says... The first obligation of government is not the establishment as a, of a free market. The first obligation uh, of government is to establish the welfare of the people, right? Uh, I mean, free markets in many senses are a kind of uh, a leisure activity, right? Uh, we will notice that even in you know Western liberal democracies, whenever things get really real and dicey, you know, the free market goes out the window, right? Uh, FDR was doing tons of interventions uh, during World War uh, II, right? Uh, we were on the gold standard, he says, we're going to get off the gold standard. Why? Because during a time of war, you need an expansionary uh, economy. You can't just be, you know, uh, essentially held hostage by whatever gold bars that, that you keep. Um, and, you know, he was making this observation, right, about early 90s uh, Russia. The second thing he says is, uh, look, I was just in Yugoslavia, right, a few years ago. Everything seems normal. Everybody is kind of like uh, uh, walking around. They're all peaceful. But now I was recently in a morgue and I'm seeing children with their throats slit, that sort of thing. And the same exact thing is going to eventually happen in Ukraine. And he was very adamant about this, right? He said the same exact thing is going to happen in Ukraine. Right. So those two features are interesting. But the last part that I often see cut off when people share this video, I'm not sure if this is because people are trying to hide the last part of the statement because it doesn't look very good. Right. Uh, uh, given what's going on recently. But uh, he says something like, why weren't the rights of Russians in Crimea and eastern Ukraine in any way secured? And after saying that, he says something like, what right do they have? to own the entirety of uh, uh, you know Crimea? What right do they have to own the entirety of Eastern Ukraine? And that struck me perhaps as a little bit more sinister in some ways, because first of all, I mean, to the extent that he was like a representative of anything in, you know, Russian thought at the time, like, I mean, he, so Edward Limanov, he died somewhat recently, like I think maybe 2017 or something. And if you see like interviews with him, right, all like all the Russians talking to him, right, they keep they keep calling him Dedushka, right? They keep calling him, he, this is our grandpa, this is our like guy. And he's sort of like already casting aspersions on this idea that Ukraine is unified in the way that it is, right? 
you know, maybe you could sort of, you know, um, you know, quibble with the way that the borders were set up, you know, maybe in retrospect, that was correct or whatever. But uh, at the same time, uh, do you think like starting in the early 90s, there was this kind of emerging uh, thought process among like, you know, Russian intellectuals that we need to cut up uh, Ukraine in some way, that this is going to be necessary, not only for the longevity of Russia, but to protect the uh, Russians? Or is that just like maybe uh, one person? Like, what is your read on that kind of situation? Actually, Limonov um, is a leader of a National Bolshevik Party in Russia. Mm-hmm. He yeah. basically represented uh, like far right. Basically, he was allied with Alan far right and far left, mm-hmm. basically, in Russia and democratic forces uh, and democratic political um, spectrum in Russia and organizations in Russia. And this is a very important, very kind of revealing statement in terms of what he said. Uh, kind of, and this is, was not limited to Limonov. Basically, Russian opposition at the time, including like uh, most nationalist opposition, like including also like Zhirinovsky, right organizations. Uh, Zhirinovsky was even more outspoken in his kind of, um, kind of uh, denunciation of Ukraine independence, basically saying that, uh, also rights for, for Russians in supporting Crimea, kind of, um, as a Russian annexation of Crimea or kind of, or, uh, Kind of uh, backup of uh, of Ukraine and including the war with Ukraine and there were other Russian politicians, both on extreme left and extreme right, who supported uh, kind of such uh, policies. But at this, uh, when the Yeltsin was in power, they were in opposition, and a lot of people regarded them as marginal and not as important. And this is, I think, another mistake because um, kind of Yeltsin, uh, when he signed dissolution of the Soviet Union with Kavchuk and leader of um, Belarusia. Belarus, uh, kind of uh, in uh, Bucha, in uh, sorry, in uh, not a Bucha, in a Belarus, Belarus Kapusha. Here, this was a peaceful resolution, a peaceful dissolution of the Soviet Union, and uh, Yeltsin in this regard was supporting such policy uh, of um, not kind of relying on violence and not uh, trying to kind of uh, support separatism in uh, Crimea, even at the time when there was separatist uh, government in Crimea in power, and um, and this is uh, like policy was. Kind of, uh, as I mentioned, uh, had a very important role in the peace in Ukraine at the time. Even so, Yeltsin regarded Ukraine as a part of kind of of a Russian world. Uh, this was kind of policy which was in opposition to uh, kind of both extreme uh, left and extreme right in Russia, both Communist Party of Russia and, uh, and uh, kind of nationalist opposition, uh, kind of nationalist organizations, far right organizations like Zhirinovsky, Liberal Democratic Party. They supported kind of more kind of radical policy towards Ukraine, including kind of um, uh, including in particular also uh, kind of uh, supporting uh, kind of Crimea, uh, annexation of Crimea or kind of or, uh, even use of military force in Ukraine or war with Ukraine. And this is, uh, I think, issue which was often ignored by people who kind of at the, at the beginning of 1990s. And I wrote my first article, which I published, first academic article, which I published uh, and this was an article about this uh, very issue about kind of prospects for democracy in Russia or liberal democracy in Russia. And a lot of people at the beginning of 1990s believe that this like Russian liberal Democrats, kind of which were considered to be liberal Democrats like Chubais and Gaidar and other ones would themselves basically would, would be in power in Russia. This is like future of Russia, kind of and uh, Yeltsin who supported them, kind of, and they would continue such a policy. But in my first article, I actually said that this is actually not uh, not a kind of 
what uh, to expect in Russia because actually uh, their views are not dominant views in uh, politics, in popular opinion. That actually more kind of radical nationalist organizations like far right, um, uh, liberal democratic party and uh, communist opposition, communist parties which are undemocratic, including all this like Limonov, uh, kind of uh, his party and so on, they represent kind of dominant view in Russia. They, uh, in the case of any elections, they can uh, they can come to power, and this has happened after uh, 1993, after there was uh, like a, a kind of attempt to uh, confrontation between Yeltsin and the parliament, which was dominated by uh, radical nationalists and also communist um, politicians and organizations, and this led to basically Yeltsin using a military force just to kind of uh, suppress this uh, opposition from the parliament and uh, basically to arrest all these uh, leaders of opposition and put uh, kind of and uh, use military force to shell the parliament. And this is kind of uh, was perceived as a positive development, but this actually meant that this is very negative for future of democracy. And I said that uh, perspective perspective uh, perspectives for liberal democracy in Russia are very bleak because of this uh, kind of uh, weak liberal kind of values and democratic values in Russia and because for this reason I said that even if um, there would be free elections actually undemocratic forces from both nationalists or and, um, kind of and left uh, far, far right uh, far left side of spectrum like communist party can come to power and um, and especially because of a strong presidential system in Russia, this power of president can be used specifically to undermine democracy. And, and this is basically what happened after Putin came to power. Kind of, um, he used this very powerful position as president to consolidate power. And Russia became much less democratic and, uh, and um, opposition, kind of nationalist opposition. And communist opposition, uh, they also receive very strong support in the parliament. But um, uh, Putin, uh, first part of his uh, presidency, he was kind of trying to continue this policy, uh, kind of uh, towards Ukraine without uh, supporting uh, separatists in uh, in Crimea. He recognized independence of Ukraine and so on, like formally. And he, because at the start of his presidency, he wanted to basically Russia kind of to join, uh, to become equal with the West and to join uh, NATO or even possibility kind of forming alliance with the West. And for this reason, the policy towards Ukraine was kind of also kind of kind of uh, basically continuation of a Yeltsin policy. But this changed very significantly after um, after the Maidan in 2014, and uh, which led to kind of um, uh, to the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, and now escalated to war with um, kind of with uh, uh, kind of with. Uh, 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 you can by Russia after Russian invasion and, and now policy of Putin it takes a lot of uh, ideas which were considered to be totally extreme in the 1990s like this Limonov speech now this became basically mainstream and if you look into for instance views expressed by Medvedev Dmitry Medvedev who was former president of Russia uh, before kind of kind of and was prime minister of Russia um, kind of uh, uh, he uh, an ally of Putin, but he was considered to be liberal, kind of more moderate representative of Russian politicians and Russian government uh, compared to Putin. But actually now in his uh, telegram, he is openly basically repeating everything which are similar views towards Ukraine, uh, kind of supporting uh, not only kind of annexation of regions of Ukraine, of Eastern Ukraine, but also saying that Ukraine has no future. That it will become not independent, basically kind of using supporting military, use of military force. And these are views basically which were shared by extreme nationalist 
opposition and uh, left opposition, I see left opposition, uh, Communist Party in particular, and kind of in Limonov and other such groups in the 1990s. And now this became basically a policy of the Russian government. Uh, it became interpreted into policy of Russian government under Putin. And this was one of the reasons why uh, to justify invasion of Ukraine. Uh, but uh, signs of this were already there, and especially, specifically in such speeches and such views which were considered to be marginal in the 1990s, but actually, um, according to my research, which um, which I published then, was actually quite predictable that uh, this could uh, become kind of a mainstream view in national politics because um, because of weak uh, kind of support, popular support for liberal Democrats and the views of uh, like Chubais and Gaidar and all the other which were whose um, policies and views were embraced by uh, by Yeltsin, were not they were not very popular among Russians, and this is kind of now also manifested by very strong support for such policies of Putin invasion of Ukraine uh, among Russian uh, not only among Russian politicians, specifically kind of also uh, politicians from liberal Democratic Party of Zelensky after he died but also kind of supporting from the Communist Party, which supports Russian invasion of Ukraine and accession of territories of Ukraine, but also an, an accession of Crimea, but another regions of Ukraine, including Donbass and the Parisian Hassan region, but also uh, among popular support. So Putin has very strong popular support in his policies and in invasion of Ukraine, which is also just manifest such views in Russia, which are, again, a very important factor for such policies and such um, and such uh, invasion of Ukraine. So I, I want to talk about uh, the sort of historical fault lines between uh, Russia and Ukraine, right? Uh, linguistically, uh, ethnically, uh, in terms of nationalism, maybe even like economic systems. Um, what's interesting about Ukraine is that during the uh, Bolshevik Revolution, uh, Ukraine likewise was still kind of you know split into uh, uh, east and west, where um, both east and west Ukraine. I mean, cor correct me if I'm wrong in some of these historical details, but both east and west Ukraine, uh, they had opposition to Bolshevism. Right? They did not want to be uh, under Bolshevik rule. In western Ukraine, this manifested itself. Uh, through, I mean, like socialism was not unpopular there, but it was much more nationalistic, right? The um, uh, the the kind of like parties that would gain power. These are like nationalist parties with sort of like liberal Western leanings, with you know like a veneer of socialism. But in the east, uh, especially in the Donbass region, they they were uh, much more geared toward socialism, not Bolshevism, but socialism. I mean, at the time in, in what later would become a Soviet republics, socialism was not unpopular, right? It's it's just that Bolshevism itself was uh, something that was being uh, uh, kind of, um, uh, uh, you know, something to combat against. But, you know, ultimately the Bolsheviks prevail. In the 1920s, uh, they, uh, were, they were not necessarily as repressive uh, against Ukrainian culture as, for instance, in the 30s, both Lenin and Stalin, they did not have some sort of like explicit anti-Ukraine culture policy. Like, for instance, uh, although like uh, maybe like before the Bolshevik Revolution, uh, you had like many newspapers that were split, you know, some were Ukrainian, some were Russian. But by the time that you hit like maybe the late 20s, the majority, the vast majority of newspapers were in the Ukrainian language. Uh, Bolsheviks allowed uh, uh, both, basically most school ch children to be taught specifically in Ukrainian. Now that starts to change in the 1930s, right? Uh, new repressions uh, uh, begin under, uh, uh, well, this was 
it was both like under Stalin, it was both kind of like considered acceptable to, to like, you know, be Ukrainian. And then also later on that, that part of, uh, identity was repressed. So by the time that we hit, uh, World War II, um, I'm assuming that the the whole kind of like origins of this whole kind of like, you know, Ukraine is full of Nazis thing. Uh, that has to do with the fact that uh, nationalism in Ukraine manifested itself as resistance to the Soviet Union. It just so happened that one of the adversaries of the Soviet Union was Germany. So therefore, Germany, you know, for its own uh, reasons, decided to, uh, you know, form like alliances with some of these uh, anti-Soviet militant groups. So there's still this kind of like, uh, uh, you know, national socialist spirit. And in fact, if you like look at interviews with, you know, like kids, they're teenagers or maybe in their 20s. Uh, from like 2014, 2015, uh, people that might be in Azov or some of these other groups are like, yeah, you know, some of us, uh, uh, some of us were interested in national socialist literature, uh, others are not so much, right? Um, so like, I guess, first of all, what I'm asking is those fault lines uh, uh, in terms of like Nazism versus communism has to do with uh, perhaps like Stalinist policies leading into World War II. And uh, we had in the 1950s, there was still like a guerrilla warfare, right, against the Soviet Union that was only put out in the 1950s. Um, this, the second question, I guess, is uh, if that is correct, what did these fault lines look like, if they looked like anything at all, like after the 50s? So like there was more kind of like liberalism, obviously, starting from uh, Khrushchev uh, afterwards, right? So 60s, 70s, 80s, you were allowed to, you know, write your dissertation in, in Ukrainian. Did you notice at the time? like any sort of uh, hostilities between Russian speakers and Ukrainian speakers? Did you notice, like, even if it was just kind of like maybe like a dismissive attitude, like, oh, Ukraine isn't real, your cultural isn't real, you know, your language isn't real. If you go back uh, in terms of uh, history, if you can, I uh, wrote my dissertation, uh, as mentioned, book published on this uh, topic, and I look into kind of history, uh, kind of as a guide and a factor which explains post-independence, um, uh, political orientation in Ukraine, because even historically, uh, support for nationalist political parties were much stronger in um, Western Ukraine mm. compared to Eastern Ukraine. In Eastern Ukraine, there was much stronger support for communist parties, including Bolsheviks, uh, and support for like uh, pro-Russian parties and political orientations. Since a very long time, and this goes even before World War One because of history, different history, different political culture, different religion, kind of, in, uh, for instance, in, uh, in uh, Galicia, uh, there was a dominant Greek Catholic religion, in contrast to uh, Orthodox religion dominant in other regions of Ukraine, with exceptional Transcarpathia. But this is, I think, a very important development. So differences were then still significant, but support for nationalists and kind of and pro-Russian politicians, and like communist politicians, did not mean that um, like people uh, supported all this extreme kind of form of nationalism and a form of um, like Bolshevik party. In both cases, uh, in elections, which are relatively free elections, they were not democratic elections, but relatively free elections in Poland, the most popular political party in um, in Galicia in Western Ukraine was the National Democratic Party or Union, which was kind of moderately nationalist 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 party, Ukrainian nationalist party, and in Volhynia. A uh, party which was uh, kind of a front party for Communist Party of Western Ukraine uh, basically received most strong support among Ukrainians in the Volhynia region, my native Volhynia region. 
kind of this was before World War II. So this is kind of um, uh, such difference. But in the case of Eastern Ukraine, there was also a strong support for Bolshevik Party in the first elections to kind of to uh, so-called uh, constitutional uh, assembly in uh, Russia after uh, after revolution, February revolution, which was later kind of suppressed by Bolsheviks. But um, again, Bolsheviks did not have majority support, but there was strong support in particular in regions like Kharkiv region and Donbas region. And uh, there was declaration or even uh, and creation of so-called uh, Donbas um, Krivo Rizia Republic, Soviet Republic, and, and uh, another in Kharkiv region. So this was a kind of division which manifested in Ukraine for a very long time. But most people do not support such radical uh, kind of extremes. And um, in Ukraine, uh, organization of Ukrainian nationalists, which was a far-right political party, which can be also classified as a fascist or semi-fascist party, became uh, uh, very significant only during World War II, because all uh, kind of um, other political parties were prohibited, and this uh, party, like OUN, uh, was acting uh, kind of in uh, Ukraine uh, in cooperation with the Nazi party. Basically, they they um, kind of collaborated with Nazi uh, Nazi kind of uh, Germany in invasion of the Soviet Union and they were able first to establish local administration, kind of local police in Western Ukraine and this police took part in uh, extermination of uh, like communist um, officials, like Soviet officials, uh, like uh, Jews were kind of massacred with this uh, police, there were programs led by OUN uh, participating with OUN participation in Lviv and other many locations in Western Ukraine. So they were able to get their significant kind of influence because first they were allied with Nazi Germany and after uh, they declared independent state in Lviv, allied with Nazi Germany, actually Nazi leadership did not accept this. They did not view Ukraine as independent country. They wanted to use Ukraine basically as their settlement area and implement their policies of um, basically genocidal policies of extermination of Ukrainian population, uh, similar policies to Russia and uh, Belarus and, and Poland, and, um, and um, uh, settle these regions with uh, German and German-speaking uh, kind of uh, people who, from other countries who were considered to be racially superior and, the, and Nazis regarded Ukrainians as uh, kind of as uh, racially inferior and uh, subject to extermination and exclusion to Siberia. So this was basically genocidal policy, and uh, and uh, kind of supported these policies. Basically, they supported Nazi Germany uh, at the start of um, Nazi invasion. But uh, after kind of a, a declaration of this uh, independent state, uh, this uh, Nazi Germany policy changed, and they basically uh, kind of uh, regarded Oun basically as um, kind of as a uh, organization. They basically declared illegal or semi-legal organizations. They arrested many of their leaders, including Bandera, but they did not kind of persecuted them, they did not uh, exterminate them. So Mandela was in a concentration camp, but he was in very privileged positions compared to kind of other political prisoners. So basically he was kind of put in isolation by, by Nazi Germany, but not kind of for extermination. So just and this is was very important because Un uh, was uh, kind of after they still, Un basically still had control, informal control of police in Ukraine, in Western Ukraine, and after the uh, kind of change in war uh, kind of took place after defeat of Nazi Germany in, in Stalingrad, this meant that uh, the tide of war would change and Nazi Germany faced possibility of real possibility of defeat. Then Un gave order to local police in Western Ukraine, specifically in Wolin region, 
abandon uh, their kind of uh, their kind of position in the police and to and to form uh, Ukrainian insurgent army. So this uh, UPA basically was organized by uh, on the basis of um, former police, uh, local police, which was controlled by uh, by the UN. So this is uh, why they became also powerful because they were able to act uh, kind of uh, in, as a force which was not legal force but uh, kind of but but um, correct force but they still had a strong influence and they were able to establish their own kind of bunch of uh, paramilitary organization which was called uh, kind of Ukrainian insurgent army and they were kind of very uh, they were able to have very strong control over western Ukraine in Volhynia and later Galicia region um, during this um, uh, during the end of World War II and the first years after the end of World War II and they were able uh, to resist uh, they did not resist much of Nazi Germany there were a few fights but uh, they were quite limited in terms of casualties and uh, in terms of people killed so they did not target uh, Nazi soldiers and Nazi military kind of members but they targeted their kind of uh, local local uh, units of police which were formed by Polish um, Poles and uh, by uh, also by, formed by Germans from uh, prisoners of war from different uh, nationalities like Azeris, Georgians and so on and later them, many of them also joined kind of UPA and this is the reason why this uh, uh, kind of organization of Ukrainian nationalists which had a very small membership about 25,000 maximum membership uh, in the uh, beginning of 1941 they were able to achieve such a significant influence in Western Ukraine but after uh, after the Soviet uh, uh, victory in World War II, the Soviet Union was able to defeat uh, this uh, kind of underground resistance and, and UPA was defeated and many people were sent to Siberia and many were killed by the Soviet forces and this led basically to kind of to Western Ukraine becoming uh, kind of how to say uh, a part of the Soviet Union there was no organized resistance in Western Ukraine I do not remember any kind of resistance or even kind of this uh, region considered to be kind of a um, uh, basis of UPA uh, even UPA was not a popular UN was not popular even then when uh, when I was um, when uh, I was uh, living in Ukraine, grow, grew up in Western Ukraine, and actually when in 1990 and 1992 I was working in this financial uh, department of uh, Lutsk district um, on rehabilitation of um, former members of UNUPA and, and their family members and relatives who were expelled by the Soviet secret police or NKVD after World War II to Siberia and Kazakhstan, many of them uh, kind of came from this from Russia and from um, Kazakhstan for compensation after this law was uh, adopted in 1990s basically to uh, to say that they were not kind of, there was no evidence they were persecuted unjustly and so on and their property was confiscated by the Soviet Union so they basically received some compensation for this from the Soviet uh, state and then from Ukraine and when I talked to them then I was surprised that many of them Kind of became uh, kind of they came from Russia and they were not showing any kind of use similar to what you expect from members or family members of UNUPA. They were speaking in Russian, many of them, kind of, and they were kind of uh, no, showing no kind of any kind of overt nationalist views, and this was very surprising. And uh, so I did not witness any kind of facility, even from former members of UNUPA. At that, at that time, uh, which was openly kind of a kind of British organization, which was major kind of opposition in the Soviet UK, uh, Soviet Ukraine um, until the uh, beginning of 1950s, in uh, specifically in Western Ukraine. But uh, there were signs of some kind of some limited signs of tension between kind of 
Действительно, ethnic tensions, but there was nothing significant which I can say that would, uh, would show later into conflict because Ukrainians and Russians, there was very strong intermarriage, and actually many Ukrainians in Eastern Ukraine and even then in Kiev were speaking Russian. So they were Russian speakers. And when I was a student in Kiev, I was speaking in Ukrainian and kind of speaking to my friends and other students in Kiev, kind of mostly in Ukrainian. And this was very kind of unique because most people were speaking in Russian. So, uh, so if you go to like public transportation, you take a bus or, or some other subway or metro, everybody, almost everyone was speaking Russian. This was considered to be kind of, uh, how to say, more kind of beneficial to learn Russian, to speak Russian than Ukrainian. Ukrainian was considered to be secondary language. Kind of uh, even at the time, there was policies of Russification which encouraged basically everybody to speak Russian. Even so, Ukrainian was not prohibited, but all the education basically was in uh, in Russian language. But it was possible still to use Ukrainian. I was uh, during my entrance examination in Kiev in 1985. I was able to give exam in Ukrainian language. Kind of, so this is, uh, was possible to use this because uh, I uh, knew Ukrainian better than Russian then, even so Russian was also very close to Ukrainian and it I also was fluent in Russian, but uh, I was able to, kind of, as I mentioned, to speak Ukrainian, uh, kind of, and to give exams in Ukrainian uh, and also to uh, to write my undergraduate thesis in Ukrainian. Now, actually, in Ukraine, this is not possible. This would not be possible, for instance, to do this in Russian. So this is actually policy in terms of minority languages, now in Ukraine become much more uh, severe, much more limited, much more less de democratic and liberal compared to Soviet policy, which was uh, actually uh, adopted by Lenin. So basically this was policy by Lenin, specifically promoting organization in the Soviet Ukraine, kind of after uh, creation of the Soviet Union. So Lenin specifically advanced such policies. And they, um, and Stalin, who was actually in charge of language policy in the Soviet Communist Party, actually supported initially such policies. But after he consolidated his power, he actually uh, announced such policies, and uh, he even resorted to kind of use of famine, kind of basically to policy of collectivization, and which led to famine in Ukraine and other areas of Soviet Union, which led to um, uh, about three millions of Ukrainians died. As a result of famine in 1932 and 1933, which was, um, again, according to my research and according to evidence, was not directed specifically as a genocide of Ukrainians, but was directed to exterminate uh, kind of uh, Kulaks and other rich peasants who were considered to be supporters of Kulaks and the collectivization. So this policy uh, by Stalin was initially kind of hit Ukraine very hard in terms of peasants and uh, many kind of people were killed, millions of people were killed uh, or died as a result of such policies, but this was policy also which affected other regions of Ukraine and Kazakhstan. So this was basically class-based policy based on communist ideology. But later, uh, Stalin also instituted Russification and, uh, and council uh, policy of Ukrainization. So this led to kind of situation when uh, many Ukrainians who spoke kind of um, just as, uh, even so they had native language Ukrainian, they switched to Russian and became Russian speakers in everyday life in their jobs and their work. And this applied not only to Eastern Ukraine and Southern Ukraine, which had a very strong Russian influence and many Russian ethnic Russians, but also this applied to cities like Kyiv and even in cities like Lviv and Lusk, there was also Russian education, Russian language very widely spoken and, and used. 
But this uh, changed uh, kind of uh, after the independence of Ukraine, when, um, but not radically changed. Even in Kiev in the beginning of 1990s, so in the, until end of 1990s, many people still spoke, were speaking Russian as a main language. And uh, this uh, changed, I think, most significantly after 2014, when, um, when uh, the policies uh, changed in this regard. So, so in this case, I think uh, there was uh, more kind of uh, Outside kind of hostility between between ethnic uh, Russians and Ukrainians in Ukraine, but there were kind of uh, such policies which uh, which I think are kind of were Soviet policies and also actually independence policies which were kind of important in creating such situation when um, kind of uh, in terms of language and, uh, and this situation changed very dramatically after Maidan in uh, 2014. Uh, let's briefly discuss uh, the Donbass. Um... Prior to this conversation, I, I a few weeks ago I came across this book. Um, I think it's a I think it's called yet yeah, Europe's La Final Frontier, uh, which is just a collection of essays that were written mostly between I think 2005 and 2006. I believe it was published in 2007. So this is before uh, Russia's uh, invasion of Georgia. I think it's very useful to look at some of these texts prior to like Russia becoming part of like the public conversation, right? Because uh, after the public conversation starts, right, due to war or whatever, right, uh, probably propaganda tends to begin on both sides but basically like looking over uh, some of what was written in this book by various academics on the Donbass um it just strikes me as a very fascinating region right because uh like for instance uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union um by the time that we hit 1993 although like eastern Ukraine uh, votes to be separate from Russia uh Many of the same people, right? They're now engaging in various kinds of like economic strikes, right? They feel unhappy with the direction that uh, the country is going, specifically Eastern Ukraine. And they had interviews in this book with like various uh, uh, coal miner strikers, among uh, other people. And they kept emphasizing the following uh, When we voted to uh, be part of Ukraine, and not part of Russia, what we expected actually was a, a greater level of autonomy for ourselves in Eastern Ukraine, in the Donbass, uh, away from the centralization in Kyiv, right? They were very upset at what they perceived to be uh, Kyiv's kind of like mon monopolization over whatever was going on in, in Eastern Ukraine. Right. Uh, this is not something that you would even necessarily know about unless you specifically go hunt it out, seek it out. Right. And then talk about it. Um, but that was going on. Uh, it seems historically Eastern Ukraine was viewed and Donbass specifically was viewed as this place of it was like a refuge for people that wanted to escape the world. It was like a kind of wilderness. In fact, the title uh, essay from Europe's Last Frontier is in a, a reference to Donbass, right? Where everything, you know, is, uh, in Europe has like a place, everything is sort of controlled, everything has structure, but this is the one place that is still a kind of wilderness. And I mean, you see this playing out to some degree in the early 90s, but interestingly enough, you still see it playing out uh, shortly before uh, uh, Maidan and then also after Maidan, where um, like I, I was recently watching some documentaries and, and footage of like, for instance, uh, the uh, uh, People's uh, Re Republic of Donetsk, right? And the people there, uh, 
it's clear that there is like a lot of like pro-Russian separatism, but there's also lots of people that sort of like want to do their own thing. I'm not sure if this is the reason why Putin waited so long to try to annex eastern these parts of eastern Ukraine. Uh, I wonder if it was just a kind of like, I don't know, you know, a political posturing, if there was something else there. But uh, the, the, the people that you saw there, like, for instance, like uh, w- when they were holding elections for like various representatives of, of this place, I remember uh, there was one uh, piece of footage where like a woman was confronting somebody that she suspected was going to like win one of these elections. And she was like, who are you? I've never seen you around, you know, in in uh, Donetsk. Uh, I've been living here, you know, my entire life, and I've been involved in pro-Russian organizations for, you know, decades now, but you just came out of nowhere and you're gaining this power. There was a lot of very strange kind of infighting um, in in these places. You had like assassination attempts as well as successful assassinations. People that were pro-Russian, you know, would get assassinated. People that were not necessarily separatists would get assassinated. Um, and it, it always, it seems to me as if like Eastern Ukraine always had this kind of rebellious streak that it was not, it was not the same thing as like, for example, like, you know, in Crimea, like it's clear that uh, it, you know, even if there were problems or whatever with the referendum uh, during the annexation, I think uh, in retrospect now, you could say that uh, most people in Crimea probably do want to be part of Russia. That's not necessarily the case with Donbass. And like with some of this footage, like, it, you know, I guess like it, it's not meant to be funny, but it is kind of funny where you see people's behaviors and they, they very much behave uh, almost like... Um, like little like mob bosses. Like I remember seeing this one like little guy who had this like total like Joe Pesci, you know, uh, Goodfellas uh, kind of like mentality. And he was like always ignored by like the people around. You had other people behaving like like total clowns and things are just kind of messy and disorganized. And it's not it's not something that I would associate clearly with like, okay, Russia's coming in, creating the structure. And now this is going to be a de facto Russian state. It feels a lot more loose than that and it feels like russia would have uh uh maybe like real trouble down the road if they in fact like you know go through and finalize the annexation and you know take this land there might very well be you know like other kinds of secessionist moves if you could like just uh, i guess like talk about maybe some of this or or the donbass um in light of uh these comments i think uh donbass was always a unique in case of the uk in terms of history it was a major industrial region, which was populated by people from different parts of the Soviet Union, not only Ukrainians. And this is, I think, a very important issue. After independence of Ukraine, Donbass and Crimea were two regions which were mostly pro-Russian, pro-communist regions in Ukraine. So I decided all elections and all public opinion polls in Ukraine, and these two regions were kind of most extreme in terms of being pro-Russian and pro-communist. So in, uh, in the 1990s, Communist Party dominated and won elections in Donbass. And they were like a Ukrainian Communist Party, they were uh, kind of, um, also kind of supporting Russian language and so on, and they enjoy very strong support in Donbass. And um, and this is why uh, kind of there was no immediate uh, kind of support for separatism, even so they were, during the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, there was such movement for separatism. And even when I visited uh, Donetsk for academic conference in uh, around 1992, uh, there was also kind of local politicians and and, and other evidence of uh, support for separatism, but uh, this uh, kind of decline after the kind of communist party was um, 
uh, getting support in elections. And after this, uh, what changed in uh, Donbass was that uh, oligarchs took power, basically, took control mm-hmm. over Donbass. So since the um, um, beginning of 1990s or since the middle of 1990s, all these uh, local um, kind of businessmen, who kind of, a lot of them with criminal connections, former criminals, they took control over all of the ma- major industrial uh, kind of assets in Donbass, including coal mines, uh, like um, steel plants, steel mills, and, and other uh, energy kind of banks and so on. They were able basically to took economic control over Donbass, and they were also able to capture politically Donbass control. So they uh, put their own politicians in power in Donbass, and for them, uh, Donbass was important not kind of as a support for any political parties. They wanted to use basically access to power to control not only Donbass, but also control entire Ukrainian politics, because control over Ukraine would give a lot of more opportunities to enrichment, because for oligarchs, power was a central way to get um, uh, rich. And this is why in Donbass, um, kind of first, um, uh, oligarch who, who became uh, basically kind of de facto a person who was control, in control of Donbass was Renat Akhmetov, who actually then supported uh, after he got rich and, kind of, and his opponents were eliminated. He got um, kind of um, basically control over Donbass and uh, he supported then uh, governor of uh, Donetsk region, who was uh, whose name was Viktor Yanukovych. And then the party of regions was organized in Donbass, and this party became dominant party in in uh, eastern Ukraine, not only in Donbass, but also in eastern Ukraine and southern Ukraine. But it was originally based as a party, basically of oligarchs, of oligarchs, uh, specifically from Donbass, and other elites, like from other kind of mostly pro-Russian and pro um, kind of and former communist regions in Ukraine, but uh, now dominated by oligarchs. And this is how party of region came to power. First, they they wanted to kind of uh, to falsify elections and succeed Kuchma as the president of of Ukraine. And Yanukovych was um, even declared president of Ukraine in 2004. But uh, these elections were falsified, kind of, and, uh, and this uh, after kind of mass protest, uh, this led to kind of uh, Yanukovych losing power. Basically, and elections were kind of um, won by uh, Viktor Yushchenko, who, who was supported by the West and was mostly supported also in Western Ukraine. So this is uh, kind of Donbass, basically, at that time, uh, did not allow any kind of opposition. So basically, because oligarchs, they wanted to control everything, so they did not allow any kind of opposition parties, even for Russian parties, to kind of function in, in Donbass. And this is also a very important issue, because there was strong support for kind of separatist attitudes, even in public opinion polls. After uh, 2014, um, sorry, after 2004, after the Orange Revolution in public opinion polls, which were kind of, uh, there was very strong support for for local autonomy for Donbass, and even kind of uh, Yanukovych and his party of region attempted to declare kind of separate uh, republic uh, in during the Congress in Severodonetsk, they wanted to declare basically separate autonomy of eastern and southern regions, which they control as political party. And this kind of was based in Donbass, which was their kind of main area of support. And they kind of succeeded later when Yanukovych was able to win elections in 2010, which were relatively free and fair elections and democratic elections, and he became president of uh, of Ukraine with support of oligarchs like Inad Rakhmetov and other oligarchs who provided him uh, with money and also provided 
him with um, kind of very important support from television networks, which are controlled by oligarchs. So this is why kind of him managed to come to power in Ukraine. And this is like most important for them was to kind of to enrich themselves, to enrich other uh, politicians and other oligarchs who control. Uh, whom they were kind of in close connection as the members of their so-called family, kind of uh, on network, and uh, they also uh, uh, came to power on uh, slogans which were pro-Russian. They said that Yanukovych promised to make Russian second official language of Ukraine, promised to have closer relations with uh, with Russia, and this meant that uh, when he won, he was in power, so there was much less reason for Donbass. Uh, kind of residents to support separatists because actually the politician from the, from their region was elected as president of Ukraine, so they believe that they can have say basically on Ukraine and they can change influence Ukrainian politics. But this changed dramatically after uh, Maidan um, and after Maidan in 2014. This led to overthrow of Yanukovych, and this meant uh, that uh, they uh, not only Yanukovych and his party of regions and oligarchs like. Um, who supported them initially uh, lost power, uh, but also kind of um, uh, Russian um, kind of um, uh, base in Donbass uh, was no longer represented by party of regions because this party basically became de facto banned in Ukraine and a successful political party was uh, was no longer any opposition party, they were just nominal opposition. And this is why there was a strong support for separatism then in the beginning of um, of this conflict. After the Maidan, I commissioned public opinion poll um, from the Kiev Institute of the International Institute of Sociology in uh, in uh, April and May of 2014. And this public opinion poll showed that um, in all regions of Ukraine, only in Donbass, there was majority support for different forms of separatism. But this, uh, but this does not mean that uh, they wanted to join Russia necessarily. There was about, I think, about 20 or 25 percent support for joining Russia or independence. But uh, a significant number of people also supported um, kind of uh, local autonomy of Donbass within Ukraine as a federal state. So this was different forms of separatism, but there was a genuine support in Donbass for kind of separation in Ukraine, either kind of complete independence or joining Russia or remaining in Ukraine, but as autonomy, significant autonomy as a part of federal Ukraine. And this is why this conflict. Uh, took place in Donbass, but not in other regions of Ukraine, because in other regions of Ukraine, with the exception of Crimea, there was marginal support for such views, or not, there was no majority support for such views. Specifically, joining Russia was supported by just few percent of people, and but uh, other forms of separatists were also kind of major, minority support in contrast to Donbass and also in contrast to Crimea, which at the time declared its um, kind of independence, but um, uh, succeeded basically with Russian support and Russian military intervention and annexation from Ukraine. Um, after my done. So I, I want to briefly I uh, just discuss a little bit more on the 90s Russia, uh, perhaps through the lens of um, there was this uh, a Cold War architect, right, uh, from uh, JFK through through Jimmy Carter, um, it was a big new Brzezinski, who wrote this book in 1997, The Grand Chessboard. I just read it uh, sometime in the past year. And I, I found it fascinating because, again, just dealing with this theme of let's look at some of the stuff that was written by liberal elite opinion. Uh, so he's writing this book, right? And in this book, uh, there's a couple of fascinating things. Like, first of all, just kind of like top down view, right? He's tapping this 1904 theory um, called the Heartland theory, 
which a lot of people don't really, you know, take seriously. I, I don't think in political science anymore. Uh, I think that's a mistake because uh, the Heartland theory sort of suggests that this entire, you know, Eurasian landmass, so specifically and rather emphatically Russia, um, that it's very, very important in different ways for, for world world power. And I think it's fascinating to see how that changes over time. In the 1800s, right, we have the the great game, right, um, where uh, various great powers are trying to deal with an expanding Russia. By the time that we get to the 20th century, right, we have uh, Russian communism, and that presents uh, an entire sort of geopolitical dilemma. And sure enough, you know, by the 2000s under Putin and Putinism, we have uh, now uh, a Russia that is ascendant, at least relative to the 90s, and uh, a Russia that is now uh, unifying somewhat with Iran and, and China and that sort of thing. Uh, perhaps there's going to be some African uh, nations as well that it's ultimately uh, able to pick off into this kind of nexus. So, and also, like, I mean, like, this may be very speculative, but I also imagine in the future, like, if climate change continues going the way that it's going, uh, I think uh, you, Ivan, will be doing very well in Canada, right? You have lots of wilderness and lots of uh, uh, cool spaces. And also Russia, right, by being a, 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 a huge landmass, they might find that, you know, when oil is over and all this stuff is over, just by having a huge landmass in, a, in a, a climate that will be tempered by then, um, that that might also be yet again, you know, this heartland. There's something important about about this area, right? For whatever reason, again and again in world history. Um, but what he what he says in the book, right? Uh, this is like 1997 liberal thinking. He wants to continue pushing for NATO expansion. I know that in your own work, as well as in my own opinions, uh, this idea of pushing NATO expansion uh, down the throat of Russia is a very bad idea, right? It's very escalatory. It's going to lead to tension. It's going to lead to military interventions. It's going to provide an excuse for Putin or anybody, frankly, who's in power, because no matter who's in power, whether it's Navalny, right? Navalny was for the annexation of uh, Crimea, right? Uh, in that sense, he's not like a classical liberal hero. Um, uh, but, you know, this is considered such a red line in Russia that even, uh, you know, liberal elite opinion in Russia would be considering NATO as a red line. So, but he's saying we need to push with NATO expansion regardless of what Russia thinks, but we need to do it in a way where we provide an, another kind of security arrangement for Russia where NATO is not seen as something that is uh, a security threat to Russia, right? Russia has other kinds of security guarantees from us. Russia has various trade deals that are beneficial to Russia. Um, and he says something like, if we fail in managing this kind of relationship, and he, he you know, uh, offers his caveat, which in retrospect is very funny. He was like, this probably is not going to happen, but if we have some sort of catastrophic failure in this policy, ultimately what's going to happen is Russia, Iran, and China are going to form an alliance, right, and form a kind of bulwark against the West as well as like other nations are going to be picked off as well, but that's probably not going to happen, right? And, you know, come 2023, that seems to be exactly what is happening, right? So this is liberal uh, elite opinion in the 1990s. If he says a mismanagement of the Russia policy in America would lead to this outcome, uh, I wonder if you would agree with me that so many of the, the kind of policy positions that America took in the 90s, there's very much a direct line from that 
to what we ultimately have today. Even something like, you know, America did interfere in a substantial way, much more substantially than Russia interfered in our 2016 election. America interfered in the 1996 election, the re-election of uh, Boris Yeltsin, right? Um, for example, there was supposed to be, uh, and they did that because he was, you know, he was running against a communist who they suspected maybe he's going to restore the Soviet Union in some way. Maybe there's going to be some sort of backsliding on human rights or what have you. Although, frankly, I mean, I don't even understand what that means. I mean, Yeltsin's Russia was not necessarily a bastion of anything from free speech to, uh, you know, like, I mean, the war in Chechnya was pretty brutal, even if they technically had that right to do that. Just like America you know, declared in 1860, we have the right to destroy any, uh, you know, part of America that wants to secede from us. But um, we did interfere with that election, right? They, uh, Bill Clinton pulled some strings in order for Boris Yeltsin to get an IMF loan that Russia was not supposed to get. But because Russia had, you know, so many uh, problems paying salaries, that kind of thing, that was supposed to prop up his re-election bid um and and also i mean like bill clinton went to russia to to uh uh on behalf of yeltsin right to essentially campaign for him knowing full well that yeltsin at the time he was breaking the law right there were many laws in place in terms of political election cycles which you can and cannot do with the media since he himself controlled a substantial part of the media right he was breaking the law so you know it strikes me as a very kind of cynical introduction of America to Russia. Right at the collapse of the Soviet Union, polling in Russia showed that 80% of Russians had a very positive view of America. By the time that Putin was elected, 80% had a negative view of America, right? And I, I think this has to do a lot with, um, you know, essentially what we did in the 90s. We failed to establish a Marshall Plan. We said, let's do shock therapy, even though uh, you have a very weak state. That seems to be a terrible idea, especially in hindsight. Um, I mean, do you agree that uh, these sort of like 90s uh, policies, uh, both cynical and also just kind of like, you know, ignorant, uh, do, do you think they directly led to the rise of Putin and Putinism? Um, and, and do you think like, like, do you draw like me a causal chain from there to the present day situation in Ukraine? I think uh, I was then, uh, in the, uh, since 1994, I was uh, studying and living in Washington, D.C. area. So I met a lot of like, politicians, attended all political events, presentations, specifically talks about Russia and Ukraine in Washington, D.C. And when this, uh, like, in this milieu, I was able to view this policy and perceptions of, of both countries. And I can say, I can say that based on uh, this perception, there was a view, dominant view in the United States, and specifically among political elite, that the uh, United States won Cold War. So this means they defeated, they believe that they defeated Russia, they defeated Soviet Union, and this meant that the uh, United States can now dictate policy uh, to, kind of, to Russia, and uh, we can have anything, uh, basically, they can want in the UK. And this is kind of perception was very dangerous because it was not based on uh, kind of on uh, Soviet Union being defeated or Russia being defeated, but there was perception that this is was the case. And and this is like kind of a view that United States is the only power in the world which can now dictate uh, to other countries what uh, kind of policies to adopt and what kind of policies to pursue. And Russia was then regarded as basically as a minor power, not important power, and the Yeltsin because it's not opposed to the United States. So there was perception that this is like. Kind of a United States can now kind of 
continue such a policy, and this explains their involvement in, in elections in 1996, supporting Yeltsin election, and kind of basic interference and, and other similar policies, which kind of and also offering a membership to NATO, to Ukraine in, um, during a Bucharest summit in 2008. So this is a kind of a created perception that basically Russia is defeated and Russia basically is uh, just in the past. And, but when uh, Russia kind of becoming started to kind of increase in terms of its political influence under, under Putin, Putin came to power, a successor of Yeltsin, and he initially continued his pro-Western policy, and pro-Western course, and uh, he even wanted to join NATO, but um, kind of he was also told basically, and given uh, kind of even after 9-11, that the United States do not regard Russia as equal uh, partners, uh, basically, uh, this because again a very important view in the United States can be summarized as an uh, American exceptionalist. And this is theory which says basically the United States is kind of historically is a kind of exceptional nation and country which which uh, kind of can behave basically as it decides. And this is like theory which was developed by my advisor Simon Martin Lipset, who was actually, as I mentioned. Kind of, um, is very important for this regard, and this is why I studied not only kind of uh, Ukrainian politics for my dissertation on conflicts. I also studied U.S. politics, and this is why I also went to United States and uh, I studied with Lipset, who was a scholar specializing in uh, U.S. politics in comparative perspective. This is, I think, uh, was very important for me to understand American politics, to understand Ukrainian politics, because without this, it would not be possible to, to do this. And when uh, kind of uh, Ukraine was offered. Uh, kind, of, uh, uh, kind of pledge that Ukraine would become a member of NATO uh, in um, in 2008. This was just formal promise because there was no real possibility of Ukraine becoming a member of NATO in any future. Because many countries like then, uh, like Germany and France, they do not want Ukraine to join NATO. And Russia specifically said that this would not be acceptable, that this would lead to end of Ukraine, of Ukraine basically. And Putin specifically threatened to do this. And this is an issue which became clear that Russia would not accept NATO membership of Ukraine, but there was still Western policy, basically, because uh, to kind of to accept Russian demands was considered to be not acceptable in the United States uh, as a leading country in the world. So uh, this policy was formally continued, and uh, even so, there was no real prospect of Ukraine membership in NATO. And this uh, policy was even opposed by Russian opposition at the time, as you mentioned, Navalny. And he, but uh, I think today he issued a new statement for, and he changed this policy, no, not about NATO. I think he changed his policy about um, kind of uh, Crimea, annexation of Crimea. So he basically now says that he supports kind of um, Ukraine within uh, uh, borders of 1991. So he just now announced his Crimea kind of support for annexation of Crimea. But I'm not sure about NATO membership now of Ukraine if, if he would support or not, because he kind of now because of this war with Russia, but I think most important issue is that uh, this kind of uh, policy could have um, uh, has very dangerous consequences, and, and this is one of the reasons why uh, Putin gets such support among Russians, because uh, his support uh, significantly increased um, kind of uh, during um, Russia-Georgia war, which was uh, when Georgia was supported by uh, Western countries and uh, started this war uh, by shelling, um, kind of trying to take power Taking uh, control of the South Ossetia, a separatist region with Russian peacekeepers present there, and also um, there was very strong support for, for Russia, uh, kind of uh, for Putin, and opposition to the United States for invasion of Iraq, uh, Iraq war, and also kind of um, before this, 
there was also kind of stock, uh, stock support for kind of uh, stock composition in Russia to uh, the NATO led uh, US uh, led kind of a war in uh, Yugoslavia against traditional uh, Russian ally of Serbia. So this meant that um, Putin had a very, very strong political support among Russian publics in this regard to pursue such policy. And this is kind of has consequences because it was very easy to prevent this war now in Russian invasion in 2022 by uh, basically NATO and Ukraine, uh, kind of saying that Ukraine would not join uh, NATO, uh, which was de facto the case anyway. So there was, there was no kind of uh, any kind of loss for Ukraine in this regard uh, to the West, because there was no real possibility of Ukraine becoming a member of NATO in any future. And uh, this kind of would pocket Russian demand, and uh, there was such a possibility of, of offering such a political solution. And uh, I proposed this peace, peace deal even before Russian invasion, that uh, in exchange for Ukraine becoming a neutral country, uh, the West basically would support membership of Ukraine in, in the European Union. So Ukraine would benefit basically by becoming a member of European Union, and uh, and this would resolve conflict with uh, prevent war with Russia. So this was beneficial both for Ukraine, European Union, Russia. So everybody would benefit in such case. But I think this was not kind of accepted because I think Western countries wanted to use Ukraine to use uh, it as a proxy um, kind of against Russia as a client state. Uh, Ukraine became client state, uh, client state after Maidan. So in this regard, uh, kind of, I think, uh, kind of, uh, uh, most important uh, role of Ukraine now is uh, in uh, in terms of Western policy is to be used as a tool against Russia to weaken Russia and to contain Russia. And this is uh, kind of explains uh, Western policy in this regard. And uh, and Western and uh, kind of Putin in this kind of policy he used justification of NATO membership even so there was no such possibility or real possibility such NATO membership. But he said that also kind of uh, Ukraine can become, uh, there will be deployment of uh, missiles in, in the territory of Ukraine by NATO countries, but this is not, there is no evidence that there was any such plan to do this. But I think this issue was uh, kind of inflated by Russia, but there was a real issue. It's not, it cannot be dismissed saying that this NATO is just a defense alliance, which uh, kind of uh, the NATO did not promise to expand them to other countries, to Gorbachev. There were such promises, there was a real issue, a security issue, but this issue was inflated by Russia in order to justify illegal invasion of Ukraine in 2022. Uh, do you think there's uh, evidence uh, of like prior, let's say, to 2008? Let's just concede for the sake of argument that not that I necessarily buy this, but 2008 onwards proves that, you know, Putin is just relentlessly aggressive. All right, let's just leave that aside, right? This is 2008. But prior to that, upon Putin's election, um, do you think there was like any evidence of this kind of uh, needless aggression towards uh, or hostility towards the West? Or do you think he was trying to make a good faith effort to become integrated into the Western sphere, whether that was like, you know, through I mean, he he, he did do some sort of a entreaty where. Uh, he he was offering the possibility, like you know, maybe Russia could could join NATO. Um, do you think he had a, a much more kind of like Western orientation at the beginning, and then after multiple rejections uh, of these entreaties by the West, he changed his mind? It's a much more kind of like a nas nationalistic sort of um, posture. Uh, or do you think there's evidence that there was this kind of uh, lingering aggression from the very beginning? That was just looking for uh, a way out. I think, uh, like based on his views and his background, he was actually putting combined different kind of ideologies at the same time: liberal, nationalist ideology, and so on. And kind of, so here, for instance, supported 
uh, initially kind of um, more friendly relations with the West and Putin offered support for uh, for the United States after 9/11 happened. So he uh, basically accepted uh, and supported the deployment of uh, U.S. military bases in uh, Central Asia, which was also considered to be a sphere of Russian influence. Kind of, but um, he kind of accepted this and supported the United States. And so, the, and he also believes that Russia can become joining or try to apply for membership in in NATO and focus on economic ties, kind of, uh, for instance, gas and energy diplomacy, kind of using advantages of Russian energy uh, supply and uh, you know, and wealth. But in this case, I think, uh, kind of, uh, for Western countries, this was not a, a policy which they wanted to pursue. They basically, for the West, specifically for the United States, policy was basically domination of the United States, uh, preserving the US-led global or world order, or international order. And in this case, any uh, policy in the United States was specifically aimed to prevent emergence of any kind of power, any country which can challenge the United States. So this was aimed against, um, and this policy would explain the U.S. policy of containment of uh, Russia uh, using Ukraine, specifically after Maidan, and using Maidan and after to contain Russia, to weaken Russia, specifically during the uh, current war. And also the same policy or similar policy is used now against China because of rising political influence and military influence of China. So the policy of the United States is aimed at preventing emergence of, um, of uh, basically rival, which can weaken or challenge leadership or leading role of the United States on world power, on world stage. And this is, I think, very important issue. And uh, this is also a major factor in this war between Russia and Ukraine, because uh, it was possible to have peaceful resolution of this war before, soon after it started. Uh, soon after the war started, um, there were negotiations between Israeli uh, Prime Minister, former Prime, then this was current Prime Minister, of, or, or then at the time this was Prime Minister of Israel, Bennett, who was actually um, leading negotiations between Russia and Ukraine uh, on a peaceful resolution of this war. And he said that basically there was a very significant progress during his negotiations. Both uh, Putin and Zelensky uh, kind of made concessions. Uh, Putin uh, kind of considered that he would no longer demand the uh, denazification of Ukraine under his kind of false uh, charge that Ukraine was Nazi regime in power and so on. But what uh, Bennett said, this basically meant that uh, Putin would no longer demand uh, kind of or expect uh, regime change in Ukraine, and also Putin uh, kind of abandoned his demilitarization of Ukraine demand, which was another kind of uh, demand for uh, to justify Russian invasion of Ukraine. But um, he said, uh, Israeli Prime Minister also said that Zelensky then abandoned um, NATO membership of Ukraine. Kind of as a goal of Ukraine, so there was a real possibility of such peaceful resolution of this conflict with status of Crimea and Donbass to be left over basically for future with a status quo not kind of decided, but basically this would offer a possibility to have a peaceful deal between Russia and Ukraine and to end this war. But Western countries, um, according to sources close to Zelensky in Ukrainian media, they published this information that. Uh, Kind of that uh, Boris Johnson came to uh, Kiev, visited Kiev, and he told Zelensky in April of 2022 not to make any peace deal with uh, Russia, with Putin. That uh, Western countries want to pressure, uh, kind of continue pressure Putin, and uh, and that if Zelensky even would make a peaceful deal with uh, Putin and or with Russia, uh, Western countries would not provide guarantees to Ukraine. 
in terms of security. And similar information was confirmed recently in interview by uh, this um, for now former Israeli Prime Minister Bennett, who said that um, kind of uh, Western countries, in particular United States and United Kingdom, blocked a peaceful deal which was had a very strong possibility of uh, being uh, successful or close to uh, success because they wanted to continue striking uh, Russia and uh, they did not want to kind of. Uh, to, uh, for Russia to set precedent when Russia would be able uh, to achieve its goals by using military force and because this would be used as precedent by China to invade uh, Taiwan and so on. So this is basically Ukraine uh, was used for such purposes kind of uh, now to wage a proxy war um, between the West and Russia. So goal of the West is to weaken Russia uh, but using Ukraine and, uh, and Russia now kind of um, the goal expanded uh, kind of again to not only to kind of basically took control over Donbass or regime change in Ukraine, but now Russia also annexed regions of Ukraine in the south and in the, in the east, in specific parts of um, uh, parts of Kherson and the Parisian region, which was not original goal of Russia, but now I think this is uh, would be expanded even to other regions of uh, of Ukraine. So Russia can try to expand and occupy other regions of Ukraine, and this is depends on military performance. And military goals of Russia, and I think tomorrow's speech by Putin would be very revealing in this case. If Russia would kind of would try to escalate this conflict or try to find some kind of peaceful resolution or kind of compromise, or if Russia would rely on more military force and try to expand its military control over Ukraine and occupation of regions of Ukraine, but I do not expect that Russia would try to occupy entire Ukraine, kind of specifically Western Ukraine. This is not would be a kind of uh, policy. Uh, this is not going to be kind of viable, and because Western Ukraine is very anti-Russian, so this is in contrast to Donbass region, and uh, in contrast, even relatively support for Russians are much stronger in uh, Zaporizhia and Kherson region compared to Western Ukraine. It is kind of strange, though, if you think historically, right? Because after World War II, also you know uh, the Allies won, America won, right? Um, and yet, what America do? It did not. Uh, you know, destroy Germany. It did the exact opposite. It had a Marshall Plan for the entirety of Europe. It said to avoid these kinds of problems in the future, right? First of all, we need like a standard of international laws, right? Many of the things that we think of as international law today specifically came about due to the actions that Hitler took dur during World War II. We don't want to repeat it that. So this is what we have in place, right? But besides just having this punitive measure, right? International law, we're also going to have a carrot, right? The carrot is going to look like a Marshall Plan for Europe. I do wonder what exactly was the reason for having a Marshall Plan for Western Europe and yet not having something uh, similar, at least for Russia, because I mean, Russia in the 90s was complete, like we're talking, okay, so in Belarus, we go from a standard of living that is, you know, by the 70s and 80s, it's somewhat approximating, you know, much of the West, right? I remember like a very kind of, you know, normal sort of middle class existence, even in the 80s, even after like a period of stagnation. Uh, and yet, by the time that you hit the 90s, the lifespan of the average Belarusian by like 1995, it was literally 51 years old, right? It's just an incredible number for a male, right? Because of alcoholism and other problems. Why isn't there a Marshall Plan in place, right? Because you could tell there's going to be some sort of recrudescence coming up, you know, like vomit, 
Um, and it's going to look like something like Putinism. It's going to maybe look like some other kind of hybrid system, but whatever it is, it's not going to be good. You know, I, and I wonder like, is there anything sort of maybe orientalist about it? Cause honestly, like when, when I watch some of the videos about like, you know, a, a Westerner, you know, interprets the Russia Ukraine war. It is so Orientalist, right? In its treatment of Russians, right? This discussion of like the Russian soul, the Russian brain. It's all these like, like highfalutin, existential, crazy philosophical things that, you know, it's almost as if they're treating these people, uh, uh, you know, like, like extraterrestrial. So like, anyway, like I, I wonder why exactly, uh, you know, it, it, there wasn't a Marshall plan. It seems like a very logical thing to do, but anyway, maybe we could just like talk about, uh, the Maidan, um, and, and your research on that just to very briefly, I guess, give a synopsis of, of your research on this. So your understanding of Maidan is first of all, uh, uh we have two, uh, um, we we have two plans that um are, are offered to Ukraine right in in 2013 uh there is the custom uh, uh, uh there's the customs union of russia right you could join uh with russia in this kind of a trade association uh with other uh, post soviet republics um or you could uh, join the eu association uh, uh, uh agreement right and the problem from the perspective of like, you know, if it's like, it doesn't matter who would be in office at the time, right, in Ukraine, essentially, when you're looking at the EU association agreement, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, the stipulations of the agreement are as follows. First of all, we need to clean up uh, Ukrainian corruption, right? It seems like no matter who's elected president in Ukraine, they probably don't want to, uh, in a very extreme way, clean up corruption because they benefit from this kind of corruption. The second part uh, is uh, uh, the EU was going to enforce an austerity regime, right? Because um, you know, even like in in the United States at the time when Obama came into office, there was still this kind of mindset, and you know, thankfully it's sort of uh, dissipating now. Now we think we need to spend our way out of problems. Back then, it was we need to cut, 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 and essentially shutter you know economies. And this is what they were trying to do to Ukraine, right? You you would have to cut social services. You would have to essentially, for the time being, deal with a reduced standard of living. But, you know, maybe in the long term, it's going to be better for people overall. But there's going to be significant cuts, especially in the Donbass, where people are dealing with, um, you know, a, a lower quality of life and also like tons of like, you know, almost like Trump style resentments. Like when Trump was elected, there were a lot of people that feel like they were totally ignored. The neoliberal order and these trade uh, agreements, maybe they were good for the country as a whole, but definitely they were not good for us. Similar kind of mindsets uh, in, in East Ukraine. I think that that Trump-Ukraine connection is uh, kind of fruitful and maybe should be explored more at some point. Um, so uh, from that perspective, uh, he's like, so, you know, we're not going to take this deal. We're going to maybe go to the customs, uh, uh, union deal. And that causes uh, an uprising. But I think according to you, it wasn't a totally popular uprising in the sense that it did not have over 50% support, right? From the polling that I've seen, it was anywhere between 40% collectively for the nation, up to 50%, but definitely never really a majority um, for the EU association uh, agreement. So maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Yes, and uh, I briefly answer the question about the uh, Marshall Plan. And the Marshall Plan was adopted by the United States specifically because of Cold War. So because of the Soviet Union, kind of Cold War with the Soviet Union, so there was a kind of need to, to get uh, support and control over 
you know, like Western Germany, and, uh, and this is why the Western uh, kind of countries supported such a Marshall Plan in the United States was a leading, playing a leading role kind of in um, after World War II in this regard by providing such a very large amount of money and to other countries. So this was a very important kind of policy decision. And after the Cold War, there was expectations of similar Marshall Plan to Russia and other kind of um, post-communist countries, but this never happened. And I think this is because of perception in the West, in the United States, that the uh, United States won the war, Cold War with uh, Russia, with the Soviet Union. So there was no need to basically to defeat the power. There was no competition left uh, at the time. So there was no kind of need, uh, geopolitical need for such a Marshall Plan. And the, uh, the Marshall Plan was actually in a kind of quasi Marshall Plan was offered to countries like Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, Czech Republic to offer them U European Union membership, which provided a lot of money and support from European Union uh, kind of uh, to countries. And this was very beneficial to Poland and uh, these countries. But in case of Ukraine, association, uh, free trade association agreement and um, free trade and association agreement do not provide any potential, even recognition of Ukraine as potential member of European Union. So there was also no money, monetary support given for Ukraine in exchange for signing such agreement. And this was one reason why Yanukovych reversed his kind of approval of this agreement, which he initially supported, because after he read this agreement, kind of uh, he, he saw that there was actually not a lot of benefits for, for Ukraine, but a lot of concessions. And uh, concessions actually did not involve economic policy, but they mostly involve trade between uh, European Union and, and Ukraine. And Ukraine basically agreed to lift uh, uh, trade barriers and basically to allow Western um, kind of goods from Western countries without kind of uh, uh, a lot of economic tariffs and, and barriers to be exported into or imported into Ukraine. And uh, in exchange, you can do not get the same kind of access to European Union market because of a quotas system. Like so, there was a very significant quota on export of uh, grain and other products and so on to, from Ukraine to other European countries, but. Uh, this uh, uh, deal was opposed by Russia because Russia said this would also negatively impact Russia in terms of uh, offering access uh, from uh, cheap uh, goods from uh, without any kind of tariffs to Ukraine, which can be also then exported to Russia. And um, but I think there, there was a real possibility for Ukraine of getting benefits in terms of, in terms of, in terms of instead of this free trade and association agreement, which did not offer any prospect of European Union membership, Ukraine could have received kind of prospect of European Union membership, which could would be very beneficial and make Ukraine a peaceful country and preserve and prevent this war between Russia and Ukraine and, and also a civil war in Donbass and kind of this breakup of Ukraine after kind of annexation of Crimea and after secession of Don Donbass, uh, most of Donbass after Maidan, but this is actually did not happen uh, because of the Maidan um, events which took place, Maidan massacre, which is, I think, very important in this regard, in, at the start of the conflict. Uh, the origins of this war between Russia and Ukraine going back to Maidan, basically, which was a kind of event. There was a conflict going up, uh, for instance, because of NATO membership of Ukraine and so on, but this was not a kind of a real issue because Yanukovych did not support NATO membership, so there was no real possibility of Ukraine joining NATO. And as I mentioned before, even NATO membership was not regarded as possible by Western countries, with the exception of US, Germany, and France, of course, NATO membership. But after Maidan, after Maidan uh, uh, let uh, 
Obstal to you can win government, you encourage government by means of Maidan massacre. This changed dramatically policy, and this led to conflict between Ukraine and Russia, which now escalated into war between Ukraine and Russia after Russia illegally invaded Ukraine last year. But this conflict started, became a kind of very important conflict and a violent conflict after. Um, after Maidan, after Russia started uh, to support uh, separatists in Donbass, and uh, there was a direct Russian military intervention in Donbass in August of 2014 and winter of 2015, and Russia also used military force to annex uh, Crimea, which was uh, mostly pro-Russian region and supported, most of Crimea supported annexation by Russia after the Maidan as well. Um, and, and your work specifically on the Maidan, right? Because I think people that uh, are not uh, aware of your work sh should know about this. So it's only in the last like six months or so that I came across uh, your articles on this. And this totally changed my perspective, uh, my understanding of what happened then. So the uh, right now, if you look at, for instance, like uh, the Wikipedia entry in Maidan, um, or you look at, you know, just like Western coverage or whatever, uh, the understanding is uh, Viktor Yanukovych uh, sees these protests and he decides to crack down hard. And ultimately, when we get to February 20th, 2014, when the massacre occurs, I believe it's something like, well, like 58 people died and a couple hundred uh, get injured, uh, something uh, along those lines, um, uh, that this happened specifically because of police repression. Now, according to your research, and this is based on you know, like like hundreds, of, if not more, uh, hours of video footage. This is based on the uh, um, uh, the treason trial, right, uh, of Yanukovych. This is based on like tons of like sworn testimony, and it seems like in the vast majority of the cases where protesters are interviewed and anybody that you know needs to be interviewed for for this information, it seems as if they are specifically blaming either directly or indirectly the militant groups, right, the right-wing groups that are providing uh, the muscle for Maidan. It's true that at its peak, there's maybe 100,000 people, just regular, you know, kind of like Western liberal types uh, in Ukraine protesting uh, in favor of the EU association agreement. But the muscle that is being provided uh, for these uh, uh, protests, which is, by the way, this is why uh, the right-wing uh, groups uh, are eventually given so much respect and have such an outsized role in government and policymaking in Ukraine. It's because of the support, the physical support through heavy arms, right, uh, that they in Maidan. If, in fact, this is what transpired, the West has absolutely every obligation in the world to as quickly as possible not escalate the war but to end the war right because they engaged therefore by you know immediately recognizing the new maidan government despite the fact that there was like an agreement at the time with with yanukovych like okay uh by february 21st there's this agreement in place that was brokered by poland france and germany i mean these are major powers and the agreement was we're going to have early elections we're going to have mutual disarmament right we're not going to continue these hostilities but that was totally, you know, ignored, right? This, this, this is again, you know, Ukrainian sovereignty uh, and Ukrainian independence being sort of messed around with, right? So to me, it seems as if, based on these events, uh, uh, the United States, a should they have, you know, essentially no right to immediately recognize this government, you know, in this kind of cosmic system. Maybe they have the legal right, but generally speaking, it doesn't seem like a good idea. And second, as 
engaging in the first escalatory actions, they now have this mandate to end the war as soon as possible instead of further escalating it. So maybe you could comment on that and, and your understandings of what exactly changes if your research on Maidan is correct. Uh, what exactly are these uh, obligations and whatnot? I think uh, based on my research, which is also based on uh, analysis of all publicly available information, so this is, uh, means like um, I think more than 1,000 1, hours of footage, kind of video footage, uh, audio recording, uh, kind of um, and um, Maidan massacre tile, which is broadcast on uh, on the web, Yanukovych season tile, and all other public evidence like media analyzed for including live uh, massacre which I was watching uh, nine years ago because I was specialized in researching conflicts and political violence in Ukraine. So this, I was reading this and studying this for a very long time. So I can say that there is no doubt. So this is beyond any reasonable doubt, which is standard, which is, can be used in legal procedures, in criminal cases, and which is even much more significant than the than standard, which is used in academic research. So all the evidence basically shows beyond any reasonable doubt that this massacre was uh, organized and um, perpetrated not by the Yanukovych government, not by his uh, sniper units or any kind of police units which are charged with the massacre, but um, it was organized and uh, perpetrated within moment of elements of far-right opposition and also Maidan opposition, oligarchic parties like Fazlan Party, and this uh, massacre this massacre was a crucial um, kind of event which led to overthrow of the Yanukovych government along with assassination attempts against him, and this uh, kind of Violent overthrow of the government was uh, kind of uh, this uh, massacre led to violent overthrow of the Ukrainian government, and this violent overthrow was, was supported and de facto Maidan massacre was also supported de facto, at least de facto, by the Western governments, which um, immediately recognized new government of Ukraine. And this is uh, uh, very crucial for understanding conflicts in Ukraine and origins of the conflicts in, in Ukraine because this massacre ultimately led to conflict between Russia and Ukraine. And, and now, which Russia now escalated by uh, dramatically by invading uh, Ukraine. Uh, but this uh, conflict goes back to Maidan massacre, uh, when the conflict became violent conflict and not just peaceful conflict when uh, you have uh, just competition or kind of uh, or political kind of controversies and so on. But this conflict now became violent, and this is now very difficult to end. And this uh, conflict still continues to escalate, and this is very dangerous in this regard because of um, of this uh, situation. So in terms of uh, Kind of, uh, and what was the second part of the question? Can you just repeat this? Uh, about what, 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 what changes, like assuming oh, yeah, what yeah. you're saying is true, what changes exactly? Oh yeah, yeah. This is why this is crucial issue. Kind of, uh, this is because to understand this conflict and how it started. So this is started. Uh, this all this conflict started basically either by Maidan opposition or by the West. I'm not sure exactly what uh, what was decisive at this moment because according to testimonies by uh, two. Kind of leaders of, of Soboda Party, right, Soboda Party, they uh, they st stated in their interviews published in Ukrainian uh, book by two pro-Maidan journalists in Ukraine. They said basically that before the Maidan massacre, a few weeks before, they had conversation with representative of the Western countries. They do not name country. They do not name who was this representative. But they said that this representative basically had discussions with them and other Maidan leaders about kind of. When Western governments would change their policy of recognition of Yanukovych government, and they said that this policy, they divided how many people need to be killed or would be killed when this uh, Western policy would change concerning Yanukovych government, and they said they have discussion like five. They said five is not enough, and, uh, like twenty, twenty would not be enough, and they basically agreed 
few weeks before the Maidan massacre that 100 would be kind of a number of people killed. Kind of who, which well, was, be, was that the heavenly hundred? Is that yeah, what it yes, comes from? Yeah, yeah. Th- yeah, this is exactly what happened. This is, I think, this is why it's not accident that um, that immediately, immediately after Maidan massacre, Maidan opposition, oligarchic opposition declared this heavenly hundred. This was specifically kind of in uh, what what was meant by the West, basically as condition for supporting uh, the new government and uh, and uh, ending the recognition of Yanukovych government. And this is happened even so there was uh, not 100 people killed, protesters killed. So they uh, included in order to have 100, they included people who died from uh, like from natural causes, from illnesses in other regions of Ukraine. Some of them committed suicide and and so on. And even one member of Yanukovych uh, office. Was included among many hundred, so this was specifically created to have this is consistent with this kind of uh, one hundred goal, which was specifically discussed by Western representative and Maidan opposition, including uh, far right opposition, Swoboda party, and this has happened because uh, Swoboda party actually they declared that they, for instance, before kind of before Maidan massacre, they took control of a hotel Ukraine. They said they're gonna guard this hotel. They would take control of the, this hotel, which will continue uh, working as usual. And this hotel was based of Maidan snipers. And uh, there are like testimonies, and um, like from Maidan massacre tile, absolute majority of Maidan protesters testify that they were shot by snipers, not from government positions in front of them on the ground or any location of snipers in any government buildings, but they were shot from the back. From the, or from the side, from the Hotel Ukraina, which was then controlled by uh, this far-right party, by, by Maidan opposition. And there are videos which show, like, inside of this hotel, the, this entrance was guarded by uh, Maidan self-defense units, Swoboda leaders were inside. They do not uh, allow anybody, uh, kind of, among even Maidan protesters who wanted to capture snipers, they were not allowed to, to go to upper floors, prevented by security and by um, Maidan, uh, by Swoboda leaders and uh, self-defense. So this is like what the evidence is there. This is like uh, the forensic examinations by government experts, ballistic experts, which show that the um, bullets, kind of, which were shot by, from which protesters were shot, did not match bullets from uh, Berkut, from government police, Kalashnikov. Or even from sniper rifles, there was no bullets from sniper rifles, but there were hunting ammunition used to kill Maidan protesters and, and caliber of some of the bullets which which protesters were killed did not match even caliber of bullets which were used by and, um, uh, weapons which were used by uh, police or, or by uh, government sniper units. So this is like evidence, medical examination by government experts shows that um, almost all protesters were shot not in the front, because they were facing backward police in front of them, which were shooting, but shooting not into them, but they were shooting into government, uh, into shooting in the ground or in shooting like in specifically to contain a bunch of these protesters, but not to kill them. But they were also shooting into Hotel Ukraina, into upper floors, into middle floors because of a roof, because this was location of snipers, Maidan snipers, which were, who were shooting both protesters and the police. So this medical examinations showed that absolute majority of protesters were shot, almost all protesters were shot from a very steep direction, from the back or from the side, not from the front. So this is again matches all this kind of evidence. And this is uh, in New York Times there was an article which uh, they claim that they uh, did reconstruction, some architecture company did reconstruction of Maidan massacre, of three protesters killed, uh, which matches the location of backward police in the front. But this this was based on fraudulent uh, kind of changes of 
location of bullet wounds specifically to make them to fit that location because auto, autopsy kind of documents which were published by this company and which was also presented during the trial showed that these protesters were shot not from the front but from the side from very steep direction which matches location of um, of, um, of uh, snipers kind of and this is again all the evidence like testimonies there are like several hundred testimonies of witnesses about Maidan snipers about uh, their knowledge in advance about capture of Maidan snipers that this were not government snipers and so on there are admissions by 14 members of sniper groups about shooting both police and protesters this is again uh, and nobody is arrested or under uh, or was convicted for this massacre uh, now almost nine years after it took place basically so today it would be, uh, so we're talking about Ukrainian time, this already would be nine years already after this massacre. Nobody is arrested now or under, or was convicted for this massacre, even so there is one of the most documented cases of, of mass murder. And there are like videos which I found and analyzed in my academic studies, which are also available on YouTube, which show actually Maidan snipers shooting into this, uh, this buildings in Hotel Ukraina, Kind of my protesters noticing this snipers are like more than hundred testimonies during my massacre videos which show like which protesters pointing to snipers in this building in Hotel Ukraina and so on. There are like videos of far right group of modern snipers shooting from Hotel Ukraina into the action of modern protesters. So this all this kind of evidence, which is overwhelming evidence, there are like videos even this video, BBC video which shows um, one of uh, from uh, like uh, one of uh, snipers shooting into the action of Maidan protesters in BBC crew from a room in Hotel Ukraine on the 11th floor and this room was according to Ukrainian investigation uh, occupied by Svoboda one of the leaders of Svoboda party far right Svoboda party and this is like a, an, another video by Ukrainian journalist television uh, shows that at the, at the time of the massacre, this journalist would point to the same room and say this is a location of snipers and he filmed them shooting this video of, of, of this sniper shooting into the actual Maidan protesters and, he, and this journalist saying that this uh, this sniper and snipers in this Hotel Kina were shooting uh, protesters in the back. So this is like all this evidence, like just overwhelming evidence, videos and other kind of testimonies and there is no evidence at all that there was any order by Yanukovych or any other kind of government uh, leaders or uh, commanders to massacre Maidan protesters and even government snipers, according to their testimonies, according to videos which are synchronized, they arrived to the Maidan massacre site only after almost all protesters were already killed. So Maidan snipers kind of killed Maidan protesters and police and then there was only then there was deployment of government sniper units. Uh, when they arrived, massacre almost immediately stopped. Uh, and uh, the shooting moved to areas which were controlled by Maidan because um, then there was government snipers deployed. So this is actually totally opposite from, uh, from what happened and what was presented by media, which is a very different kind of outcome. And this is, I think, a very important issue because of consequences of this massacre are very significant because after this massacre, this lecture of the Ukrainian government, this uh, Russia responded by annexing Crimea, which um, again, and then uh, supporting also separatists in Donbass, and separatists in Donbass was local uprising, but supported by Russia. And Russia directly intervened in the Donbass war, which is um, uh, kind of this large conflict between Russia and Ukraine, which uh, now kind of escalated into this very dangerous war between Russia and, and Ukraine, but which is also not accidental that this war is a proxy war also between West and, um, and Russia, because West Western countries uh, use Ukraine as client state. So you can be basically became client state of the West of the United States after Maidan, because then the United States kind of uh, de facto 
kind of played a, a role basically in, in recognizing and legitimizing a new government, if you can, as a result of Maidan massacre. Even so, the question, uh, there is no evidence of direct U.S. involvement in this Maidan massacre, but uh, this kind of policy of U.S. government changed almost uh, basically immediately after Maidan massacre, as was mentioned by this Western representative, that they would change policy of recognition of Yanukovych government after there would be 100 protesters killed. And in his memoirs, Biden, who was then vice president of the United States, said basically that he called Yanukovych uh, right after Maidan massacre on, on February 20th, 2014 and told Yanukovych to leave not only position as president of Ukraine, but also to leave Ukraine. And this is what happened. Kind of, uh, Yanukovych... that, that was an Obama. I believe that was Obama, right? Well, this uh, Biden was vice president. Biden? Yeah, Biden was under Obama, but Biden then was responsible for uh, contact with Ukraine. So Biden this was person who was in charge of policy towards Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And this is why this is important. This is like Biden mentioned that he called Yanukovych. Kind of, and, and um, Obama then uh, in interview to CNN, he said basically then uh, that the United States uh, and he kind of were, uh, were kind of involved in uh, in uh, kind of organizing a political transition in Ukraine even before Yanukovych fled. So basically, Obama admitted that there was U.S. involvement in this uh, kind of overthrow of the Ukrainian government and uh, and removal of Yanukovych without any kind of constitutional agreement, without any constitutional uh, rights. This was illegal, then overslow by means of Maidan massacre, but uh, Obama said that the U.S. helped, helped, to, helped to kind of uh, to undertook a transition of uh, something, a transition of power in Ukraine. This is admission by Obama, and then he also admitted that Russia then uh, annexed Crimea in response to this. So this is, I think, a very crucial issue to understand the conflict in Ukraine. And this is not like black and white conflict, which is often presented by media, which specifically omits any reference to Maidan massacre. So this is why all the evidence is available. I studied this, I presented this at top conferences, published in peer-reviewed journal, academic books, and but the media basically ignores this. And this is like a kind of people who just follow this conflict, they would have very little understanding of origins of this war. But this is, I think, a very crucial issue to understand the conflict in Ukraine, and this is why I kind of uh, Russia also used this um, violent overthrow of Ukrainian government to justify its invasion because Putin claims that this is uh, this was fascist coup. Um, kind of even so, this was not uh, uh, my research. I researched the issue also far right. This is not well, this was not fascist coup because kind of uh, far right was not dominant in Ukraine even during Maidan. They were uh, having crucial role during Maidan massacre, but they were not alone. There were other sniper units, and there was also oligarchic opposition involved. And, and Western countries provided de facto support, at least de facto support. So this was not just um, kind of uh, fascist coup. This was kind of, and there was no neo-Nazi regime in Ukraine as well. But this was kind of uh, far right, which played a very significant role, and they they were in power in Ukraine, but uh, not as single force. They were just uh, kind of uh, they joined the first government of Ukraine and became integrated in in uh, in a different. Uh, um, military units, national police and security forces, but they never became dominant force in Ukraine. And the most important force was oligarchic politicians and kind of uh, like Poroshenko and, and uh, parties like the Fazlan party after Maidan. And this continued with um, selection of Zelensky, who actually promised peaceful resolution of this conflict, but actually um, led, uh, ended with a war between Russia and Ukraine, and I think uh, which would be kind of very uh, negative effect on on uh, this uh, future of Ukraine. And, uh, this is why I'm pessimistic about future of Ukraine because now I think it will be very difficult to resolve this conflict peacefully. It was possible to resolve if uh, if people would uh, kind of 
if if you can was treated actually as equal equal country as not kind of as some kind of second rate country by Western countries which supported violent overthrow of Ukrainian government, but instead uh, if they were, were supporting actually Ukraine as a as a uh, kind of a future member of European Union like or making Ukrainian the same policy would apply to Ukraine uh, like uh, uh, which is policy which is used in democracies like Canada. So then it would be was possible to resolve this conflict peacefully, but they decided to use Ukraine as a kind of to contain Russia or to weaken Russia. And this is why I think now again Russian policy now expanded to annexation of regions of Ukraine uh, beyond Donbass and beyond Crimea. So this is now I think it would be very tough to have peaceful resolution of this conflict. But I think this is a very crucial issue. Maidan Massacre has a, a almost a kind of decisive role in the start of this conflict and kind of. So this is not as black and white issue. This is a much more complex issue, and this is why I think it's important to understand this conflict based on evidence, not based based on politics. So there is nothing political. I have no association with Yanukovych. I have no association with Russia, but this is I rely on evidence. So I just present whatever evidence says, and I study the conflicts professionally. And this is why I can say beyond any reasonable doubt that this is what happened, and not and all the media basically inaccurate representation. Even so, there were a few media. Western media like BBC report and uh, German television documentary, which uh, which reveals similar kind of evidence and similar information about um, false flag Maidan massacre and the involvement of Maidan snipers, but now it's almost again totally forgotten or not mentioned even in, by the media or even politicians. Uh, so you did this paper uh, that you presented back in 2022, and uh, I, I just want to uh, read an excerpt from it that I that I found pretty amusing um, on the Maidan and sort of the kind of like uh, ideas uh, uh, behind all this. So Leonid uh, Kravchuk, the first president of Ukraine, revealed that he received information about a plot to assassinate Yanukovych around the time of the Maidan massacre. He stated that this plan was called Ceausescu after the last name of the last communist leader of Romania, who was assassinated by soldiers soon after snipers massacred the anti-government protesters in a false flag operation, right? And it's sort of a contrast with what happened with Maidan versus what happened in this other nation state. The former Romanian president, prime minister, and a number of other leaders of the romanian revolution were charged by the romanian prosecutors in 2018 and 2019 with crimes against humanity for using deliberate disinformation and diversion right after they seized power in 1989 to provoke false flag mass killings um and i think we could sort of use that to like uh maybe like briefly discuss this idea of like all right is this a Western-backed coup? Just like, you know, understanding uh, what really happened during the massacre is important, I think, for any sort of policy decisions and, you know, ethical obligations that, uh, you know, the world's most powerful state uh, would have. Um, I also think it's it's important to understand uh, whether or not uh, this is uh, some sort of Western-backed coup. And I want to be like, sort of like very careful here. And uh, I don't want to, I don't want to bore uh the audience too much but i think this is like there's like five parts to this question i'm sorry but okay so like the first part is just kind of like generically speaking um we noticed like for instance like last year we had this like culminating set of protests in iran uh, uh iranian protests have been accelerating and ongoing for a number of years now but really they sort of hit the peak uh last year with the slaying of a woman by uh, the uh, morality police 
And at the time, there was like a lot of like disgusting, like repulsive kind of stuff going on in social media with all these like people that, uh, you know, maybe they're like uh, communists or maybe they're sort of like leftist adjacent. And I say this as, you know, somebody very far on the left, but they would say things like, these aren't real protests. These are, you know, agents of the US, of the CIA. They're just there to destabilize Iran, right? Um, uh, uh, actual Iranians, they actually really support the Ayatollah. They, they support their nation state, um, which is clearly false. I mean, there's, if you're living in Iran, especially if you're a woman, you have plenty of things to complain about, right? It's perfectly reasonable to assume that you're going to have uh, spontaneous protests. At the same time, I think it's useful to view this idea of a Western-backed coup or Western-backed protest or whatever as a kind of you know spectrum, right? There's a kind of continuum here. If, for instance, Donald Trump goes into office and he totally like shudders, right, the sort of international consensus, which is um, the the you know Iran nuclear deal, which is working just fine. Uh, and suddenly reimposes the sanctions on, on Iran for literally doing nothing wrong whatsoever. Uh, it stands to reason that plenty of people in Iran are going to think, okay, look, suddenly now we're back with like, you know, we have new levels of poverty again. Our government looks weak. I don't like this. There's going to be some kind of resentment that boils over and it's going to find its way into these protests. It's not to say that these are like Western-backed protests and they're being paid off by the government or whatever, but there is a relationship between newfound sanctions and a newfound weakened position in Iran and protests that later emerge spontaneously. There is some level of causal connection. So that's like the top-down view, specifically in relation to Ukraine. I remember reading uh, articles like during the Orange Revolution at a time before, uh, you know, again, Russia was really in the news. So people were able to say this kind of stuff openly. Uh, like there were like articles, for instance, in 2004 and 2005 in The Guardian, where they would interview people associated with the Orange Revolution. And these people would say stuff like, look, uh, you know, this isn't like a, a Western backed thing in some sort of crude way. But uh, we have to be honest, we're getting hundreds of thousands of dollars and in some cases, millions of dollars from uh, Westerners, right? Many of them rich, many of them politically connected, and they're allowing, you know, a flourishing civil society to emerge in Ukraine, right? Um, is that a Western-backed sort of orange revolution? I mean, you can't quite say that, but again, there is some sort of spectrum, right? There is some sort of causal relationship between the establishment of a kind of pro-Western civil society with this kind of money and what later emerges, you know, from the other uh, uh, end of it, right? So um, that's kind of like uh, the first kind of like top-down thing. Um, the second thing I would ask is, imagine if a similar thing was going on in the United States of America. Let's say that, you know, we have like Chinese people coming over, right? Associates of Xi Jinping and they start, or, you know, let's say Russian associates during 2016, they go to the Rust Belt states. They go to the places that are analogous to the Donbass in the United States of America. And they tell these would-be Trump voters, we hear you, we understand what you're saying. We totally stand by you. We understand why you're upset with the neoliberal order. We understand why you're upset with NAFTA. And you know what? Uh, we support you in these protests, and we hope that ultimately you guys have Trump elected. There's no way that America would ever, ever accept that happening. And yet, 
during the Maidan and shortly before it, you have John McCain, right, who was a, a you know a, the 2008 Republican nominee against Obama, right? He's out there. He's saying we support you guys. Victoria Newland is passing out cookies and sandwiches, right? Um, we have these uh, uh, you know phone calls uh, uh, indicating you know who they want to essentially be in power. Americans after 2016, they were sent in such this like crazy tiff over Donald Trump and the possible Russia connection. And yet those links in some ways, right, are weaker than the links between America and Ukraine when it comes to Maidan, right? So again, America would never stand for this if Russia did it here, if Chinese officials would come out doing here. And yet, you know, um, we're expecting uh, uh, someone else to stand by this, right? So that's like the second thing, right? Uh, but I would say that the coup itself, um, right? Uh, like, like I said earlier, right? Like there was this kind of agreement uh, between the Maidan protesters and the Yanukovych administration uh, that was brokered by France and Germany and Poland, where they would mutually disarm, they would uh, tone down the hostilities. There would be, because of this unhappiness with Yanukovych, uh, maybe he did totally fritter away any possibility of goodwill. So they're like, okay, we're going to hold early elections because of all these events. But instead of this transpiring, immediately after there was a violent storming of the administration building and, and whatnot, America right away, right away recognizes the new Maidan government counter to the agreement that was brokered very recently before that. Um, that now, finally, like that's starting to have more and more tonality of like, all right, if this is not a Western back who... We're getting awfully close, aren't we? Um, uh, the fourth point being, uh, uh, you know, like Ukraine is a kind of client state. What what America now says, like, okay, not this official. We want this official, not this official. We've been doing this now for almost 10 years at this point, right? Um, there is a huge amount of Western influence. The final piece of this, and this is much more recent, uh, we have a Jeffrey Sachs and we have Seymour Hirsch. They're saying things like... Uh, you know, I, I know people in government. I've been involved with these people in government. And there was much more Western planning and Western sort of a collusion with this coup. Now, we don't know the details. Perhaps they're just bullshitting us. Who knows? But in combination with all these facts, I mean, you know, I have my problems with Jeffrey Sachs or whatever, but he's not somebody that I would consider some kind of clown, right? He's a legitimate person. He's done legitimate things, even if you disagree with, uh, you know, shock therapy treatment for Russia, you know, uh, without having a proper functional nation state or whatever. The fact is he's not some sort of a crazy lunatic, right? Um, so uh, with all these other facts in line, right, it seems like you could make the argument quite credibly that on the spectrum of like no Western coup to Western coup, we're getting very close to the territory of a classical Western style coup. Um, maybe you want to elaborate on that. Uh, yes, I think this issue, which I also researched, uh, I presented recently a paper as a, uh, my study, as an annual meeting of American Political Science Association in Montreal, in which I examined the issue about uh, how to classify war in Ukraine um, and also how to classify Maidan. And according to my research, I think um, kind of Maidan had different elements. It had the element of mass protest, which was a popular protest, but it was not majority protest. It was close to half 
of Ukrainians who supported Maidan, but it was half of Ukrainians also opposed Maidan, which you mentioned in public opinion polls. But this also was had elements of political revolution, the political far-right revolution, where the far-right organizations wanted to, to conduct revolution, kind of change political system in Ukraine, have radical changes. So there were such also elements, but this was not uh, kind of dominant kind of revolution because far-right did not choke power in Ukraine, they were not uh, by themselves, totally, they were kind of minor, they were secondary role after um, uh, Maidan massacre, but they played a crucial role both before and, and their role was oversights, role and influence in Ukrainian politics since, but they were not dominant in Ukrainian politics in, in during the Maidan, but they um, very crucial role in Maidan massacre, so this is uh, important in this regard. But in addition to this, there was also kind of elements of um, coup, so there were elements of coup in Ukraine, and there were also elements of regime change, particularly led by the United States. So all these elements, they were there. And uh, so, and uh, the most important reasons for overthrow of Ukrainian government, which violent overthrow of Ukrainian government, was not because of Maidan protests, kind of because Maidan protests were not effective in this regard, but most important were kind of because of Maidan massacre, which was conducted by a small number of of Maidan leaders and Maidan opposition elements and Maidan snipers. So this means this is, would be more consistent with uh, combining, but this was also supported by the United States, which I mentioned, kind of admission by Obama, that they managed uh, position of power in the UK, after Maidan massacre, and also statement by Biden, which kind of, and also this Western statement about 100 uh, protesters need, need to be killed to, to change recognition of Yanukovych. So this all suggests that there was also policy of regime change. So this means um, it's not clear actually who actually was decisive in this case. During Maidan, uh, in change of power, was it the United States or if the uh, US role was supporting or deciding or deciding? So it's not kind of clear yet how to classify this. But uh, that's why I use the term um, violent overthrow of the Ukrainian government, which was backed by the Western countries. But uh, I think it's still kind of not sufficient evidence to say whether this was a kind of decisive in terms of US policy or if this was just policy of a Maidan opposition, which was included far-right opposition and oligarchic opposition, which was supported by the United States and other Western countries. So I think still it's necessary to see what kind of issues there were, but I think a very important recognition and, and uh, information provided by Jeffrey Sachs in this regard, because then also recently by uh, Simon Hersh in his also interviews, that there was, they, that they have insider sources which tell them that there was very significant involvement of the United States, which is not made public. And this is, I think, I think this might happen. And, but again, this might be very likely, but uh, I think this, um, uh, I think also a very important issue. And, uh, and actually, Jeffrey Sachs was uh, very kind of, he contacted me after, after he read my Maidan studies and he said that he liked my studies and about Maidan, kind of Maidan and specifically transition in Maidan, Maidan massacre and so on. And, um, he wrote a very kind of uh, supporting letter of my study about Maidan massacre after it was initially accepted by a peer review journal. And then, uh, after its acceptance by editor of peer review journal, after peer reviews of, uh, by experts of my Maidan massacre, my new Maidan massacre study, it was rejected by this journal because of political reasons. So this, he read a very kind of strong letter of support based on my, for my Maidan massacre study. Even I already published previous version of the study of, of my study of far-right involvement in Maidan massacre as a peer-reviewed paper. I have also a publication in the form of a book chapter 
and presented the major conference. This was kind of my comprehensive study of Maidan massacre, which is kind of now becomes very difficult to publish because of this politically now become a kind of very, uh, political censorship. Basically, now makes it all research which goes against line uh, government line or against narrative dominant narrative considered to be kind of unacceptable, and even in academia, which is supposed to be open for such research. But he was very supportive in this regard, and I think this is a very crucial issue about uh, this kind of uh, situation. And in case of uh, similarity, I think there is a similarity to Romania, which I mentioned, and according to investigation in Romania, they found that there was also kind of similar situation when, when protesters were shot by snipers who were never identified, and according to the investigation in Romania, this, there, there was no actually government snipers involved in this massacre, but this was done by uh, by the opposition which, uh, within the Communist Party, which took power and became a new government of Romania, and they specifically executed Ceausescu and uh, um, having uh, kind of uh, accused him of being responsible for the massacre of uh, protesters in, Buc in Bucharest and other cities of um, Romania. Even so, they were the ones who actually organized this massacre by uh, kind of using uh, kind of false like information and, and similar kind of plan, I think, was used in Ukraine. But it's not clear who actually based on publicly available evidence, who actually designed this plan and what was involvement of different kind of politicians or different countries. That's why I cannot say exactly yet. This requires a lot of research and it's not possible yet to say definitely because a lot of documents are not yet available. They are obviously classified and this relates to documents both in Ukraine and the Maidan government and the Maidan politicians, but also relates to governments in the United States and other Western countries. But I think there are all the evidence, I think they know definitely uh, that this was not kind of massacre conducted by Yanukovych, that this was actually kind of just part of uh, overthrow of the Ukrainian government. And this is, I think, in this regard, this is a very important issue, and, um, and uh, but uh, which has also similarity to other kind of uh, policies in other countries. And this is not unique because this is just continuation of US policy, which, uh, which is um, uh, documented by many other kind of uh, cases. But uh, I think in case of uh, Ukraine, what happened during Maidan, kind of, there are still uh, issues which require kind of um, information which is not yet publicly available. But I think this uh, issue is a crucial issue in terms of uh, peaceful resolution of this conflict as well. And understanding this, how this conflict originated and how it escalated into war between Russia and Ukraine and also now proxy war between, um, between West and Russia. And also continuation of civil war between also in Donbass. Even so, proxy war and, and war between Russia and Ukraine are now dominant in terms of war in Ukraine. And uh, civil war became much less significant after the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, one year ago. Uh, Professor, do you have a moment to discuss the legality of the Russian invasion? Uh, yes, I, I can do this, yes. Um, so in your 2022 uh, paper, um, uh, so like you're, you're laying out uh, the following scenario. Uh, West, the West begins with various provocations and escalations. Russia responds with another escalation in the form of uh, the annexation of Crimea. And then ultimately we have, for instance, the failure to implement the Minsk agreements, um, which is also a, a kind of escalation, which we're going to touch upon. And finally, right, there is the, uh, 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 the last escalation, right, on the part of Russia, which is an illegal invasion uh, of, uh, Ukraine, right? I don't think there's any, you know, schol scholars of international law that would uh, hold the position that this is under the law as presently written and constituted. They would not say that it's a legal invasion, uh, 
Um, but at the same time, I want to sort of maybe like draw some hypotheticals and maybe sort of see it from the Russian perspective just a little bit because I do have uh, some trouble, uh, you know, I'm anti-invasion, but some of these objections that I'm sort of seeing in my mind, uh, I would have a hard time uh, responding to if, for example, like a Russian nationalist might present them. So first of all, in your paper, you say the following. The Russian invasion of Ukraine cannot be considered legal because of the fact that there was no imminent threat of Ukraine joining NATO, which I agree with, right? If if it was ever going to happen, it would happen much, much, you know, uh, further on in some unbounded future. Um, let's say, however, that there was an imminent threat, let's say a few months or up to a year for Ukraine joining NATO. In your estimation, would there be either a legal right or some sort of ethical right for Russia to invade Ukraine under that scenario? I think this is a question issue under international law. Uh, what can be uh, justified as legal if this war would be prevented? Basically, if it would prevent the danger, basically from another state. So, uh, like, uh, so this is a kind of a, then what becomes legal. And uh, Russian justification of this war, kind of using uh, various claims, specifically, kind of uh, to justify its invasion, was that this was preventative war in order to prevent Ukraine from uh, kind of launching uh, its military operation to take control of Donbass, to prevent Ukraine from becoming a member of NATO, from deploying weapons, Western weapons in Ukraine, which was threatened in Russia, for instance, and so on, to become a nuclear state. So this is all kind of issues which are real issues. So this is not kind of just, um, which are often dismissed for political reasons, because the issue of NATO is a security threat and uh, issue of potential uh, policy, which was declared by uh, Zelensky after his, uh, he was elected on peace platform. He actually changed his policy kind of uh, in opposite direction and became kind of um, uh, basically not implement Minsk agreements and, um, and uh, kind of and, uh, started to uh, publicly declare that his goal was to take back control of Donbass and uh, annex Crimea um, using uh, force or kind of other methods and, and this is actually kind of was used to justify uh, Russian invasion but this uh, under illegal law this is kind of uh, under legal uh, standard this is, would not be qualified because this requires to be kind of immediate danger or imminent danger of such a kind of a security set and of such use of military force and this did not happen so there was no kind of urgency in this regard and this is why uh, the war of uh, of uh, Russia, which is was initiated by Russia, is not legal under international law, and it also cannot be justified as a kind of uh, to, to justify uh, Russian invasion, and uh, because all the sets were in inflated, they were real sets, but uh, they were inflated specifically to justify this invasion. Uh, this is like a kind of similar situation applied to other conflicts. This is why I think it's important to understand. But there are actually scholars, including in the West. Who, uh, who actually agree with, with Putin claims that this was preventative war, kind of this, this uh, justified, basically Russia was justified in this uh, war. So this is not just the Russian propaganda, there are like callers kind of who say this, even so they are not uh, active in, uh, in the social media. But according to my research, this is again, uh, this is not uh, justifiable. This was basically a war of choice by Russia, kind of, uh, because uh, there was no imminent threat to Russia to justify such invasion of Ukraine. So in the case of like the highest stakes, right, with an imminent uh, joining of NATO, you'd see some possibility of either legality or at least ethically for Russia to uh, launch an invasion. So let's like systematically lower the stakes a little bit. So there is no imminent threat. 
of uh, uh, Ukraine joining NATO. But uh, what if um, uh, we sort of see the following situation? So according to John Mearsheimer, uh, the sort of, you know, weapons transfers and whatnot and trainings that began uh, with the Trump administration, because remember, like, you know, Obama, he did not want to get involved in this way. But Trump, uh, he starts a kind of a escalation, maybe we could call it through these kinds of transfers. Those begin to accelerate early on in 2021 with the election of Joe Biden. Um, I remember watching videos actually at the time because Russia, Ukraine was already out of my mind for a while. And they were they were saying things like there was like one geopolitical analyst and he was like, uh, people aren't really noticing this, but there's a war that's brewing and it might come pretty soon between Russia and Ukraine because of all these new arms transfers. And John Mearsheimer, he emphasizes in his various talks on uh, the, the Russian invasion that 2021 was a pivotal year where Putin was alarmed by these kinds of accelerations. So, okay, uh, we have a Ukraine that's not joining NATO, but Putin is now making the calculation, and perhaps it's not a totally wrong calculation, because Russia is not doing as well in the war against Ukraine as people expected or as Russia expected. So Putin is thinking, okay, it's either now or never. They're not a part of NATO yet, or maybe they never will be, but they are essentially becoming a very powerful state. The only thing that would be missing is that final piece where we could potentially have foreign boots on the ground if I end up invading Ukraine. Uh, do you think that changes the calculus legally or ethically in any way if, in fact, we have an acceleration of arms deals and so on and so forth, as John Mearsheimer says? Well, I think this, this uh, does not justify uh, a provision of uh, weapons and military training to Ukrainian forces by Western countries does not uh, justify a Russian invasion of Ukraine because this is not compatible. And the, and the kind of amount of Western weapons which was given to Ukraine was nothing compared to what happened after the Russian invasion. So this was relatively small amount and number and type of weapons which were given was considered to be defensive weapons, like and which included uh, was this uh, I think javelin missile, uh, yes javelin anti-tank missiles. But these uh, missiles were uh, given by Trump administration, but the, under conditions that they will be kept in Western Ukraine. So they were not on front lines. They were not used by Ukrainian government. So this was kind of, and Ukrainian government also got uh, like hold of. Uh, they bought uh, some uh, this um, kind of uh, this um, kind of um, what is called uh, drones uh, from Turkey by by Ahtar, which were also kind of, kind of more offensive weapons, but they were also not very large number, and there was also kind of no real um, any evidence that they plan to use them during the offensive. Uh, which was imminent offensive. So in this case, this is not justifiable, and I think uh, kind of I don't see any evidence that there was any kind of real threat from Ukraine. Even so, there was real kind of military training, including by uh, Western uh, military, including by Canadian uh, military of Ukrainian forces, uh, provision of weapons. But this is nothing kind of um, kind of which is on the scale even uh, compared to what happened after the Russian invasion, or compared to many other countries which are given such weapons in conflicts. So this is. Uh, standard issue, and this does not justify uh, innovation of another country under similar pretext. Because Russia also provided weapons to separatists in Donbass, uh, like um, tanks and uh, any other like heavy heavy weapons. And I think Russia also likely supplied a book, uh, an anti-missile, anti-missile, anti, -missile, anti, -missile, um, anti -missile. 
I'm kind of, I'm kind of um, with missile which which uh, which was uh, used to launch uh, missile which uh, which uh, took down uh, shot down a Malaysian passenger plane over Donbass in 2014, and I think this was according to my research and according to evidence released by uh, Tile in uh, Netherlands. This was basically kind of in, unintentional because separatists wanted to shut down a Russian coup which was uh, uh, mining this book, it's not yet clear, but it was uh, very likely Russian um, weapons provided to separatists uh, in order to shut down uh, UK military planes, and this um, um, this book was used to shut down, or was intended to shut down UK military plane, either, either kind of a transport plane or some other military plane, but it, it um, mistakenly hit or intentionally hit a passenger place, plane, but this is like Kind of Russian involvement in this regard is very significant, and Russia supply weapons to separatists, but this does not mean that, uh, that for instance, uh, this would justify uh, Ukrainian invasion of Russia, or kind of under protects uh, that Russia kind of gave weapons to separatists in Donbass, which is, would be also kind of illegal under on the law, but this is, again, similar uh, logic and similar idea would apply to the war, uh, kind of, um, uh, kind of uh, current war and, uh, and before the war, there was no justification for Russia under international law. But this is a problem with international law that actually nobody can enforce such law. And the countries uh, like uh, even, even Western countries, like in case of uh, weapons of mass destruction, justification to invade Iraq, this was also kind of falsified. Basically, there was no even no real evidence of any weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. But this kind of set was used kind of by uh, US and other Western countries, including the United Kingdom, to justify invasion of Iraq, which was also a violation of international law, but again, this was done openly because nobody can object to this, even some, even many countries like France and Germany do not support this, but this was done kind of um, under false pretext, uh, again, using the set, potential set of weapons of mass destruction, even so there was no evidence of any weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. So similar situation can have uh, can happen with Iran, because Iran nuclear program also can be used to justify kind of war with Iran, and similar kind of you know, principles, uh, justification was also used in many other conflicts, but this is, again, would be illegal under international law. But the problem with international law is that, that it's voluntary kind of... Uh, um, uh, law because nobody can enforce uh, this law and nobody can be punished under this law and this is why countries uh, can violate this law and this often happens and this is why kind of uh, Russia violated this law and uh, I, I think they could not be punished in this regard because uh, this is uh, kind of this no nobody no international court no, no, nobody can which force uh, can Russian leadership kind of uh, to be punished under this law. Uh, kind of under this violation of this law, which is uh, uh, which is again uh, I think is not disputed, uh, kind of uh, by majority of scholars, and uh, but there are a few scholars who agree with uh, this Russian claim that this was prevented to war. Even so, I do not agree based on evidence and based on my research about this war in the past and other conflicts which was ongoing. I don't see any such evidence. There was a real kind of uh, set of of this um, kind of of this. Uh, uh, to Russia to justify such an uh, invasion of Ukraine. I think that's an excellent point about uh, international law. I, I would say, however, that um, you know it being a voluntary system, we could definitely imagine another situation in the world if, for instance, imagine in the 90s, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, um, the West, uh, and specifically America, decides to follow international law, right? Because we 
violated international law nonstop in the 90s and the 2000s, continue to do so right now, right? Um, we might have a very kind of different system in place and enforcements if, you know, the, the main power in the world would uh, behave, you know, um, uh, only, you know, like violently if there is a true security threat towards it. But okay, so uh, because there's no NATO ascension, that's not a sufficient condition for Russia's invasion. The se the selling of arms and training is also insufficient, even if through hindsight analysis, we could say that perhaps Poon was correct in his assessments of growing Ukrainian power. That is still insufficient because, I mean, I agree with you, right? This is You could use that justification all over the place. You could use that justification for invading Russia because they're supplying, you know, arms to separatists. I think all that is true. Uh, the third part, and this is kind of like I'd say within the last few months, and I saw you retweeting some of this. Um, does Russia uh, have uh, uh, any sort of growing legal or ethical right to launch an invasion if, for instance, the Minsk agreements uh, that everybody agreed to, Ukraine agreed to them, Russia agreed to them. This was brokered by uh, international bodies. Um, and yet we find out recently, right, in the last few months, uh, all this information coming out, all these quotes from politicians involved that nobody uh, on the you know Western side ever, in fact, hoped to implement these agreements. It was just simply... Uh, to buy time for Ukraine to become sufficiently powerful, right, to rebuff any sort of potential Russian advances, does that create either a legal or an ethical right for Russia to invade Ukraine? Especially, I think, in light of the fact that, I mean, we could imagine a situation if there's a kind of like, you know, major deal that's brokered between a Palestinian militant group in Israel, and suddenly, you know, it's revealed that Palestinians all along, they never cared to implement it. They were just, you know, getting arms from Iran, uh, and they were just buying time. Nobody in the West would look at these Palestinians and give them any kind of like credibility. They'll say, yeah, okay, Israel, whatever you want to do to these people, finally, if you want to vaporize them, vaporize them. This would be more or less the Western reaction. So based on the fact that the Minsk agreements were essentially a farce from the beginning, does that, given that Russia is, you know, sort of a, a I think maybe ha had a bit of a more like a, a good faith effort to adhere to it, does that give any sort of legal ethical justification for the invasion? Um, no, I think uh, they also would not be uh, you know, could not be used to justify this invasion of uh, of Ukraine by Russia because uh, Minsk agreements in the first place were a result of uh, Russian interventions in Ukraine, military mm -hmm. interventions in Ukraine in support of separatists, separatists, and this took place in August of 2014 when Russia uh, kind of deployed for the first time covertly without admitting this, uh, like several battalion groups in Ukraine and they, they were able to encircle Ukrainian forces in uh, Ilovaisk and able kind of to prevent uh, defeat of separatist forces by Ukrainian forces. Uh, this is led to first Minsk agreement which was signed by Ukrainian government because basically uh, to, to stop Russian uh, further Russian invasion and uh, kind of, uh, intervention in other regions of Ukraine, in particular Mariupol, which were very close to being captured by Russian forces in the first Russian kind of meeting intervention in August 2014, but this led to Poroshenko uh, basically signing a peace, peace agreement in Minsk to, in order to prevent this Russia from uh, kind of uh, taking 
from other and giving this to control our separatists. And this is uh, what happened also in um, in uh, Minsk in the uh, second time when in February uh, second Minsk agreement was signed. It was signed after Russian military intervention in Donbass. Specifically, Russian also deployed several battalions correctly in uh, in this um, in Donbass. Kind of uh, and uh, um, and there kind of uh, to support separatists and uh, specifically they were able to encircle and defeat Ukrainian forces in the area of the Baltimore and this led to kind of again Poroshenko in order to prevent further kind of gains by Russia. Uh, Poroshenko signed them. Um, Kind of Minsk agreement in order to stop uh, basic advance of Russian forces. So such agreements basically was political decision and it was comp compromise. So as any compromise, this is was kind of again uh, this uh, this was also supported by United Nations Council. Uh, the Minsk, second Minsk agreement was basically um, kind of approved by UN Security Council. But uh, the problem was that uh, kind of Ukrainian government and Western governments did not want to use to implement these agreements because uh, this would mean that Russia would gain control over separatists at Donbass. And this is why Russia did not want it initially to annex Donbass because they wanted to use Donbass to control, to have a say in on over entire Ukraine, over Ukrainian government because Donbass was a very powerful electri kind of electorally as a base for, for Russian forces and they and uh, all involvement in conflict by Russia in UK was uh, given uh, Russia power to influence entire Ukrainian politics uh, and basically block Ukrainian membership in NATO by uh, kind of being involved in war in Donbass and this is like a, a kind of reason why Minsk agreements were not implemented because uh, kind of um, Western governments and Poroshenko governments they basically wanted just to buy time uh, and uh, they kind of signed this agreement um, under kind of set of Russian military intervention so new kind of uh, so Russian invasion would not justify this kind of um, again uh, would not be justified by the failure to implement Minsk agreements because they were initially um, kind of adopted because of again illegal Russian um, military intervention in Donbass which are um, de denied by Russia but there is a lot of evidence of such intervention kind of, and, uh, and uh, fighting uh, by Russian forces in combat but most of forces were separatist forces at the time local separatists in Donbass and I think this is a uh, I think very important issue which is um, kind of Kind of uh, also says because uh, international law basically, if you have agreement, this was if if there was a political solution and political will uh, will in Ukrainian government or Western governments to implement Minsk agreement. As I said this before the war, it was it would could be very useful to resolve this conflict and prevent war between Russia and Ukraine because. If a failure of such agreement actually was one of the reasons why Russia invaded this, even so, this is not legal. Kind of, this does not justify like a Russian invasion, but they basically kind of use this uh, failure of Minsk agreement in order to kind of launch invasion. And this is another failure of Zelensky policy because he could have implemented this agreement and, um, and declared UK neutral, and this would prevent all the negative, devastating effects from the war, uh, from the Russian invasion and the war, which is ongoing and still would have much negative, much more negative effect on Ukraine, but he did not do this. And I predicted in my interviews, media interviews and Canadian media interviews in my publications before the Russian invasion, this is like a real possibility of war between Russia and Ukraine. And this, that's why I said that this was the only hope for Ukraine to prevent this kind of agreement, uh, to, to prevent this uh, war. And Russian invasion, which would be devastating to Ukraine, is to basically implement Minsk agreements and, and uh, to agree to, to autonomy of Donbass within Ukraine, which would present uh, Donbass within Ukraine uh, legally, 
even so they would have a de facto kind of autonomy or even a de facto independence or kind of certain uh, kind of strong degree of independence but also this would um, um, also make Ukraine a neutral country and this would also prevent uh, another justification for war um, kind of which uh, was used by Russia but the problem with international laws that again against such agreements they are kind of they only uh, good as uh, so far as uh, as parties of such agreement would be willing to implement them, and uh, in this case, uh, Western governments and admission by Merkel, by Poroshenko, by Zelensky recently, also by French former French president, who, uh, who kind of that uh, they do not wanted to implement such agreements, so they just use them to buy time, and this is I think a failure and a very negative effect. Even so, this does not give a justification for Russia to invade Ukraine. And another issue is that uh, now international law is also often kind of replaced by the Western countries with inter so-called rule-based international order, which basically says that there are rules which countries need to follow, and these rules are not kind of international law. This is basically kind of policy which is proposed by the United States, and that's why they would say that the United States, they would justify, for instance, illegal uh, under national law, this was illegal invasion of um, war uh, by NATO countries in, in Serbia, in Kosovo, and also illegal uh, under international law kind of uh, invasion of Iraq. But they say this is like just uh, justifiable because of rule-based uh, international order, and this is, I think, a very dangerous precedent because Russia used kind of uh, NATO invasion of uh, war um, with, uh, in Kosovo and recognition of independence of Kosovo as uh, one of the uh, precedents to one similar kind of uh, invasion of Ukraine, and this is, I think, kind of another failure of, um, of a policy which could have prevented this war. But unfortunately now, I think this is uh, kind of now possibility of peaceful resolution is much much more, uh, much less likely compared to a um, uh, situation which was, uh, was a real possibility before the war and even after immediately after Russian invasion, there was such possibility of peaceful uh, deal which would, could have uh, prevented much more negative effect, a lot of casualties and a lot of kind of devastation to Ukraine, which is still ongoing and still likely to continue for a long time unless there will be any radical change in this conflict. Uh, the the final piece of this, and after this, I promise we're we're done. Um, that is perhaps related to international law, uh, but is a little different from it. Um, so since since 1823, we have the Monroe Doctrine, uh, which states that uh, no other nation state can interfere with what happens directly, you know, above us to the north and to the south, right? Um, and this has been in place now for. Uh, well, 200 years now, right? Um, and this has like various kinds of permutations. Obviously, America invaded uh, Grenada uh, when there was a Marxist coup, right? Um, we back coups elsewhere. If somebody starts to interfere uh, anywhere close to our borders, uh, we, you know, we behave uh, essentially like thugs um, in regards to that. So nobody really attempts it. Um, like, for instance, right? If uh, so what is today? Today's Monday. If tomorrow, Tuesday, there is a successful Russian-backed or Chinese-backed coup in Mexico, uh, I think by Friday, Mexico would cease to be a functional nation-state. Given the fact that this is how America conducts its policies, is there any sort of, uh, not legal justification, but any kind of ethical justification for Russia to essentially say, look, 
why don't we have our own variation of this thing called the Monroe Doctrine? We have a Western Baku and our borders. This is totally illegitimate. We had all these other promises uh, uh, broken towards us in terms of, you know, NATO expansion. This wasn't supposed to happen, right? And there's a long documentary record of this. Uh, can they ethically invoke something analogous to the Monroe Doctrine uh, and invade uh, Ukraine as a result? So this is like a, a Monroe Doctrine and, and a Russian justification, similar Russian justification of having a sphere of influence would not be actually legal uh, and or ethical under international law because this would mean that this is not a condition of sovereignty of other countries and this would apply to Ukraine as well. So this is not uh, can be justifiable. So both monodactin and, and uh, similar Russian policy, uh, considering Ukraine as part of a Russian sphere of influence, is not justifiable by ethics or by international law. But this is actually a fact of international politics. So US mm -hmm. uses this doctrine, and actually Russia also applies this doctrine, which I mentioned, policy of near abroad. Kind of they said that basically Ukraine and other post-Soviet states are kind of sphere of Russian influence. Which uh, and they uh, this is one of the reasons why they also prevented um, kind of integration of uh, of these countries like Ukraine uh, kind of, uh, and uh, for instance Georgia in um, NATO or kind of membership or, or in um, Western military alliances and so on because they wanted to kind of use these countries as a sphere of influence. So this is like fact of life in international politics. So this does not mean this is justifiable or this is ethical. This is actually not ethical. This is not justifiable under international law. But this is fact uh, of international politics, which is. What um, kind of Mr. Shaima, kind of, or this so general kind of Mr. Shaima from the uh, University of Chicago says in terms of realistic policy, realist school of international relations, this is like fact of, of international politics. So this is kind of um, could have been expected because, for instance, when uh, Soviet Union deployed uh, nuclear missiles in Cuba, this was kind of uh, uh, legal, actually, and uh, actually under international law, kind of this was legal uh, because Cuba was sovereign country, basically, and the Soviet Union was another sovereign country, so they can deploy weapons in any uh, just as part of sovereign agreement. There was no prohibition on this, but actually, United States threatened to launch invasion of Cuba, and also there was possibility of war between uh, United States and Soviet Union, nuclear powers, which was a very dangerous conflict. Because actually, the United States considered this is not acceptable. This this was considered to be a military threat to the United States for the same reason. Again, uh, Ukrainian kind of use of Ukraine by NATO military before this invasion, there were like, for instance, uh, use of nuclear bombers uh, training in Ukraine over airspace close to you know, kind of Crimea and to, close to Russian border, like intelligence things and so on. So this is kind of also kind of Ukraine is uh, kind of. This is basically Ukraine is a sovereign country, considered to be a sovereign country, but uh, this, in fact, uh, like Cuba also was a kind of de facto dependent on the Soviet Union, and the same applies to kind of Ukraine, which is dependent on uh, on the United States. So this is an, an, uh, basically an, uh, kind of an deployment of any weapons there creates uh, danger, which can be used by other countries to launch kind of military kind of invasion, but this is obviously does not justify this invasion, but this is again uh, kind of part of international politics, which is uh, kind of could have been easier to see, uh, for instance, and this is why uh, this professor from the University of Chicago kind of uh, was correct in this regard he, when he predicted that there was a real possibility of such war between kind of Russia and Ukraine because of NATO expansion or because using, not only because NATO expansion, because actually Western countries also wanted to use Ukraine kind of um, 
as de facto kind of uh, member of NATO without giving UK NATO protection under Article 5. So they would deploy uh, kind of their military bases. There was also possibility of uh, and some kind of plans to build a new Navy base in Machakov in Ukraine and deployment of uh, Western military forces in uh, kind of in Ukrainian capacity in uh, Western Ukraine in Lviv region and other locations of Ukraine. So this is kind of an uh, integration between NATO forces and supply of weapons. So this is kind of a policy which uh, kind of was was used by Russia to justify its innovation, even so it's not illegal, but this is actually kind of, again, could have been easily prevented and avoided, because this is like part of life and many other countries would, uh, act, uh, again, uh, as I mentioned, the uh, United States threatened a war, uh, kind of with the Soviet Union and Cuba, even so this was kind of legally, uh, this was illegal, but this is actually part of life. This is why it's necessary to take this into account and not only limit uh, kind of politics to international politics, because a lot of countries can um, behave uh, again uh, in violation of international law, but nobody can stop this. Another example, for instance, uh, kind of policy of uh, China and Taiwan. So Taiwan is legally recognized by international countries, including the United States, as part of China. So this is basically is not independent country. So, and, uh, but de facto controlled by Basically, separatists or kind of secessionist or government, which was uh, led by China Shek after kind of war in, um, in China, who they fled to this island and took power under control, and they basically have hold power over, over this island, which is now recognized internationally under international law, including by the United States and other countries, uh, most other countries with few exceptions, as part of uh, China. But if China would invade, China, Taiwan would use military force to invade Taiwan, U.S. policy basically is that U.S. would support Taiwan and would oppose uh, United States invasion, so Chinese invasion with military force, and there would be a war between the United States and China. So this is like policy, which is, again, would be illegal under international law, but this is kind of part of international politics. So this is, means that, again, this is not justifiable. Uh, is an invasion. Can, invasion might be justifiable under international law, but this will not be justifiable in terms of international politics because this would lead to war uh, between China and the United States. And the uh, United States uh, policy in this regard also would be a violation of international law, but this is again fact of politics because nobody can force the United States to implement this uh, kind of international law because this is uh, in the interest of the US. So this is why kind of um, Russian policy and invasion of Ukraine uh, kind of um, can be uh, kind of uh, studied also kind of not only in terms of international law but in terms of how international politics works and uh, then international law often is uh, not uh, implemented because nobody can force countries to implement such wars and in particular countries which have power like uh, military power like the United States and in this case um, kind of Russia believes that they they can also achieve this by military force and nobody can force Russia basically to kind of abandon this. Um, invasion and stop invasion because Russia uh, can have advantage as military power with nuclear weapons. It can use nuclear weapons in case of any danger. And this is, I think, a potential um, very negative impact because it can lead uh, ultimately also to war between NATO and uh, Russia, which can be a nuclear war. Even so, this is not very likely, but there is such a danger which is most significant since Caribbean crisis or Cuban missile crisis in uh, the beginning of 1960s and also because this means that the uh, UN has no real possibility of defeating uh, Russia militarily, even with support of Western countries, even with intelligence provided by Western countries, attaining and uh, advice and planning uh, by Western uh, military kind of com commanders and, uh, and weapons. So UN still uh, has a disadvantage compared to Russia in terms of weapons, even uh, conventional weapons like artillery, tanks, 
and so on, and a number of uh, military forces, which can Russia still mobilize, much larger number of military forces compared to Ukraine. But uh, Russia still has much significant advantage of nuclear weapons, which can always use in case even if Ukraine is managed to uh, kind of to to defeat the Russian forces by using conventional weapons and move them and uh, try to move the war to Crimea or to separatist controlled Donbass, like um, in the Donetsk region or Luhansk, kind of in uh, regions which were controlled by um, separatists before. The, the Russian invasion, in such case, uh, Russia always can use a set of nuclear weapons or even uh, uh, use nuclear weapons in the, as last resort. And this means there is no real possibility of Ukraine defeating Russia. And this is why I think uh, kind of from a practical perspective, uh, again, this is um, kind of, again, uh, you have international law, you have international politics, but in uh, terms of practical perspective, the, uh, the best option for Ukraine in order to minimize consequences of this conflict was to reach peaceful agreement or to prevent this war. And uh, now still is, I think, better to have some kind of peaceful agreement because the longer war continues, there would be worse consequences for Ukraine, and which means Russia can have a possibility to annex more regions, to acquire more regions of Ukraine, and uh, Ukraine would uh, have no possibility to defeat Russia in, uh, by uh, taking back uh, Donbass and taking back Crimea. And this is why I think this is kind of, uh, it was very difficult to expect that this policy would be adopted by Zelensky, basically, and by Western countries, because I don't expect that they know, they recognize uh, kind of privately that uh, they can, they will be able to defeat Russia. So if you are not able to defeat Russia militarily, so why to have uh, basically to do this uh, with such con such tragedy for such consequences, very negative consequences for Ukraine? Because in the end, the situation for Ukraine would be much worse. The longer war continues, the worse outcome would be for Ukraine. Uh, even so, there might maybe slight changes like what happened like with Kherson and Kharkiv. This is not going to be a kind of major effect unless something extraordinary happens. But uh, in terms of uh, outcomes, in terms of probability, this is not very likely. So, so I think um, kind of uh, the most likely outcome that uh, Russia again is about to uh, manage to keep uh, now regions which are annexed by Russia or occupied by Russia, or it will be able to expand its control over uh, some other parts of eastern and southern Ukraine. But I do not expect that Russia will be able to occupy entire Ukraine, or just would be willing to occupy entire Ukraine. But I do not expect that Ukraine would be able to take back control over um, Donbass and uh, Crimea, with exceptions, with uh, it's possible, well, obviously, small changes and small regions would be uh, taken back, or some regions, again, it's possible to have offensive and to uh, limit control over kind of over some parts of uh, regions occupied by Russia. But uh, I don't expect this is uh, can uh, Ukraine would be able to kind of turn this uh, war into direction uh, in which uh, Russia would be defeated. And this is, I think, this is why I, I think kind of. There is no justification for such policy, but with the exception of uh, Western countries using uh, this war, kind of basically using Ukraine and Ukrainians to uh, weaken Russia, even so they know that there is no uh, significant likelihood or real likelihood of Russia being defeated. But the longer war continues, this is considered to be beneficial for the West because uh, kind of they weaken Russia, and this is their goal, no matter what kind of outcome would be. But for Ukraine, this is actually a very negative effect. Because Ukrainians, the ones who suffer, both kind of in terms of human life, military casualties, going civilian casualties, and in terms of impact on the economy, and the future of Ukraine will be actually now very you know, devastating because of 
the effect of this war, which would have a very uh, negative impact, even if you can would manage to kind of keep control over uh, over, uh, over many kind of regions in eastern and southern Ukraine, it still would be very kind of difficult uh, to deal with these issues after the end of the war, you know, if the war would end. But uh, currently, there is no kind of prospect of any. Uh, Soon, uh, that this war would end soon, and I think a speech by Putin tomorrow, which is uh, would be very decisive in this regard, what, what he would announce, if the, he would announce again escalation of this conflict, or if he would may, maybe suggest some kind of uh, compromise, in which he would uh, try to basically declare de facto kind of control over Russia over regions which are occupied and annexed by Russia, and uh, would uh, offer de facto ceasefire, which is another possibility, but I don't expect that Russia would agree to any kind of concessions, major concessions now, even though this was possible in March of last year, but now I think uh, Russia is not going to be willing to kind of see, uh, to kind of took back um, and uh, return control over kind of um, Kherson and the Persian regions and uh, also over Donbass in particular, and uh, not uh, even saying about Kenya, which is beyond any kind of um, uh, issue for negotiations, because for Russia, Kenya is a very important issue, and uh, this is uh, why uh, Russia annexed Kenya in 2013. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the proper way to look at it. Um, you know, just generally speaking, looking around the world, uh, the Monroe Doctrine is neither ethical nor legal, but it is a fact of life. Uh, and although, uh, you know, I respect uh, John Mearsheimer's work, um, I do wish there would be people working on, you know, some sort of political theories, uh, especially of like international politics that would take into account like what would a post Monroe Doctrine world look like where it's not allowed to be tapped. I think Mearsheimer would say, well, you know, that's not possible, right? Uh, uh, um, nation states are in a state of anarchy, right? Until a, a powerful enough actor comes along. Um, and that's simply how it is, right? It's essentially human nature scaled up like to, to the scale of nation states. At the same time, you know, I, I, I can't help but think that eventually we're going to get some sort of post Monroe world because as long as we have a Monroe doctrine, the fact remains that every other country that is powerful enough to tap it, right, whether it's China or Russia, um, it's going to cause a lot of chaos. It's going to create a lot of havoc around the world. And we're not helping it by, uh, you know, on the one hand saying we're the leaders of the free world, here's the rule-based order, here's international law, where we're going to systematically violate it. And by the way, you guys cannot, right? It's just not sustainable long-term um, for peace, right? And for the longevity of the of the planet. Um, I, I, I hate to end on a uh, such a sour note, but, you know, there's nothing good here, I don't think. So uh, if you don't have any uh, final comments, I guess we could end it here. So if I can uh, just uh, briefly uh, comment on your last point, I think this is also a very important issue because this war in Ukraine would not only determine the fate of Ukraine, which is, I think, very pessimistic in terms of what the outcome of this war for Ukraine, that Ukraine has no uh, likelihood of winning this war, and uh, the issue is only what kind of um, basically defeat it would be able to manage and, and sustain, and what kind of consequences in the long term would be, which would be, I think, very negative consequences with kind of only a slight possibility of European Union membership in the future, but again, it might take a long time and uh, decades and even longer without any, and without any guarantee of you can become a member of the European Union. But in terms of international order, this also would determine world order. And if uh, the United States basically would be able to still to maintain its uh, United States-led international order, and if um, 
because if uh, uh, this war would kind of end with a kind of certain victory of Russia, limited victory, like uh, which is uh, what is uh, we have right now, or kind of a more significant victory in which Russia is able to kind of impose peace agreement on its terms to Ukraine or and occupy and annex other parts of eastern and southern Ukraine. In such case, this would be considered to be a defeat not only to Ukraine, but also to West and NATO countries, including the United States, because they were not able to defeat Russia. And, and this is why stakes are so high, because outcome of this war would, um, uh, would uh, kind of, would uh, either undermine power of Russia, which is, I don't think, kind of, would be um, lucky in terms of um, and control where you can, but uh, if Russia would not uh, kind of uh, win, so this war, this means that uh, they would uh, lose a lot of power and influence. And for this reason, for Russia, this is very important. This is like an existential war, existential conflict, which is uh, determines future of Russia. And this is why they would uh, give as much forces and uh, as much effort to kind of win this war and, and uh, on on their terms, uh, even kind of partially. To achieve partial victory, and for uh, Western countries, this is also very important in terms of outcome because the outcome of this war would determine if uh, the United States would be able to maintain U.S.-led international order, which also applies to other countries. For instance, uh, a lot of countries outside of the West uh, either become neutral to this conflict, or even some, in cases, some of them supported um, Russia, like uh, uh, like countries like North Korea, Venezuela. And uh, Syria and so on supported Russia and Iran, but uh, many major countries like uh, China, India, and Brazil and South Africa they become neutral, kind of or kind of and de facto leading into uh, even uh, supporting Russia or kind of in terms of economic support or trade and so on, without uh, but without providing military weapons. So in this case, if Russia would be able to kind of successfully kind of um, achieve their goals and, and uh, achieve a limited or kind of more significant victory in Ukraine, this would mean that uh, influence of the U.S. would decline. And this would also apply not only to countries kind of uh, uh, like uh, Ukraine or uh, countries in the region, or maybe even to China, but also would apply to countries in Latin America and Brazil and other countries might be kind of more kind of uh, uh, willing to continue and pursue independent policy, and uh, then the uh, United States might not be able to implement this monodic doctrine because of uh, limited influence, because maybe China would be able to expand its influence uh, instead of the uh, United States. This is why stake of this war is very crucial, and it's not mm -hmm. only limited to UK, but also limited to, also, also not limited to countries like uh, Russia and um, other countries, um, kind of close to UK, like Poland, but they also involve no, countries in uh, which are not involved in directly or indirectly in policy war, specifically countries in Latin America and countries in the South, like Africa and, and Asia. Yeah, I agree. Uh, the stakes is what makes all of this particularly frightening. I was myself getting, you know, uh, optimistic about a, a peace plan like April or whatever la last year when we started hearing uh, those stories before that was essentially uh, put down. Um, yeah, and, you know, it's not just the stakes in reality, right? Uh, Mearsheimer would argue it's also the perceived stakes, right, which is ultimately what matters, right? Uh, it doesn't matter that Iraq was not actually a threat to us. Um, there's perceived stakes, right? There's perceived legitimacy. Uh, there's um, so anyway, but uh, thank you, Professor, for doing this. I hope this was very informative for everybody. I hope you got to answer uh, some types of questions that you didn't get a chance to answer before in your other interviews. 
Um, so, and maybe we could do something like this in the future as well. Thank you everyone for watching and we'll see you again soon. Uh, yeah, thank you for the interview. This was, uh, again, a very good uh, questions and uh, interview. And uh, I think I enjoyed my interview and uh, hopefully I answered your questions. Thank you. Yeah, it, near the end, I had all these uh, uh, fastballs, but I think you answered those legal questions uh, to my satisfaction. So you definitely mentioned some things that I haven't thought about before. So thank you for doing this and thank you for sticking out over three hours. This was a marathon, but it was a fun one. Okay, thank you. And I teach my courses like three hour courses. So for me, this is just normal, normal yeah. path. And I sometimes get in front of a camera and I literally speak for four hours straight just by myself. So uh, I'm glad that we were able to find some commonality there. Thank you and have a good night. Okay, thank you. You too. Thank you.